You know, I've known you now for probably when did 25 years? Maybe longer? Five years. Longer. Well, Ozo just celebrated our 25th anniversary, so probably around that time. The bomb party, 95, I think was when I met you, maybe? Yeah, so that's, was that the DNA Lounge? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's 25 yeah, I, years ago. Yeah, I have pictures of that. I, I, I Somewhere I have photos of that. Oh, I need that. I still have yeah, the video of a performance that Josh took on the stairwell or something. It's weird. Yeah, that was, it was a bomb party. We met 25 years ago at a bomb party at the DNA Lounge in San Francisco, and it was, I think it was Gavin Week, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I feel like it was Gavin Week, and I and you guys, Jurassic 5 had basically kind of just formed, I feel like. 95? Absolutely. Yeah. It was, um, I think we had just released the blunt version of Unified Revolution, like, because I brought promos to pass out, and I remember giving one to Kubert, all psyched. Um, but, um, so we had, we had been to, we had had that, the, the local version before we had our name, it was just Unity Committee and Rebels of Rhythm. But when Jurassic Five became the name and it was put out on blunt, that was like, it probably got released that week. It was that week. Yeah. 1995, it was yeah, that week. So what month would that have been, like October or? I think so. I, I, I feel like it was the fall. They had them in the fall. Right. Because Gavin's kind of around the same time as CMJ in New York, right? It or was. was. Yeah, yeah, it was. And for, and for people that don't know, Gavin was, it was the hip hop convention of the early 90s. And we were very lucky because it was held in San Francisco. So, yeah. you know, us at that time as the Soul Sides crew, I mean, we were, you know, as broke musicians we didn't have any money to travel anywhere so we were very fortunate to to live in the bay area where they had this convention and i think that year i think i saw well you guys were in the in the crowd at the bomb party but i, I think at gavin's at that gavin and gavin's past you know we'd see nas cool g rap the far side freestyle fellowship <laughs> apache you know uh nikki d Curious, wow. George, the Beat Nuts. I mean, like all these. It was Did like you went all those. You saw those people. I saw them. I performed with everybody I just mentioned. At at that at that time. Not at that, Gavin. But two years earlier, you know, I was. Well, that was a 1993, Gavin. That was when we first debuted. Send them right. The the first Soul Side. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And it was the same type of thing. Like we were sitting out there. Uh, in front of the stone, which is defunct now, it was a club on Broadway, and we're sitting out there. We had just got the white label promos in, right? You might even have a copy. Of this. Josh, Josh told me this story. Like you guys are sticking the stickers on. Yes. Like, like at the shit, right, or something. Yeah. Like, well, we're, we're sitting on the street, not the sidewalk. The oh, street. Right. There's a picture. Of on, not the curb. Yes. You have you seen that picture? I love that picture. Yeah. Yeah, and we're sitting there, and we had we had um, we ran off the, the the labels at Kinkos. It was called <laughs> Kinkos at the time, right? Now it's FedEx, the FedEx store. Yeah, 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 the but FedEx. Store. And we were sitting there with scissors. When was the last time you had a pair of scissors? You know, well, what I mean? yeah, I mean, you know, I'm okay. quite analog. So yesterday, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're sitting there with scissors, like 
cutting the shit. It's all jagged and shit, you know. The way we cut them, we, you know, they look like pinking shears, you know. <laughs> we're like cutting this shit up, sticking them on, and then we gave out probably 500, you know. Wow, okay. And, and, and Kevy Kev, shout out to Kevy Kev, put us on this bill at the Stone. And, and we're going to share some of these stories because these are great fucking stories that nobody's heard, you know what I mean? Oh, this is I know you've got a ton of them too. And on that bill was me, Nas, G-Rap, Farside, Souls of Mid. I was very first. I was on at like 6 p.m. My you know? God, 93 was a fucking year, wasn't it? Yeah. All that shit happened, yeah. That's right, Beat Nuts, what, Intoxicated Demons or Street Level? I don't remember, man. It was one of the, yeah, it was right. that era, though. Yeah. I was Damn. 20. I was I. I was 20 years old, man. It was crazy, man. You know? So you, uh, was that your first Gavin you went to? Or had you gone to previous ones? When did Gavin start? I think it had been going since the 80s. Yeah. But I think that was, 93 was the first time I went. And then I saw you guys in, nine. I met you guys in 95. And then, you know, I always felt like, like Soul Sides and J5 were just sort of like kindred spirits. You know what I mean? I always felt like we were sort of like, it was like the California underground version of like native tongues. You know what I mean? Well, that's exactly what I was going for when, you know, uh, when Unity Committee was around and, you know, native tongue and flavoring unit were my two big aspirations to be, you know, I wanted to be 45 Kings so bad. Um, Cause I just knew he was somebody that had all these dope records and made all these dope beats for these dope MCs. You know what I mean? And so, yeah. Uh, and then when you bring in other groups and start to become a super group, yeah. um, which is what y'all did, it's what we were doing. So like, yeah, exactly. When we, when we met, it was almost like we knew each other already. It's like, so I, I've known you for a long time, but there are a lot of things that I really don't know, you know, okay. that, I, that I wanted to ask you about. So, so the way that it started, you and Tuna were a group at first, right? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the beginning and um so in 1987 i met a guy named marvsky remember marvsky that's marv yeah yeah that's out to marv i met him through a guy i went to junior high with now i got bused to a school in mid-city but i lived in hollywood you know i live near marshall which is kind of where i live it's a high school where you see like it's high school from fucking greece all right where it's greece Anyway, Charlie Tuna went there. Mark Seven went there. This guy Marv uh, went there. And so when I got introduced to Marv, he was like this dude from the East Coast that had knowledge of shit I didn't know about. Like, hey, do you know Enjoy Records? Do you know like um, Spoonie G? And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I was still buying records in 86 and 87 at the warehouse. Like, I wasn't digging in used record stores. Yeah. And this guy was like... Did you, just say, did you just say the warehouse? I said the warehouse, yeah. I used to steal <laughs> records from the warehouse. Continue. <laughs> so this guy was like, you should, you, you're fucking around. Uh, you're doing it wrong. You should go to the used record stores. They have better shit. And I was like, why would I want to buy a used record? Like, it's beat up. He's like, no, 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 no. Look, just come with me to this place called Rockaway and you'll see. Mm. And so then, you know, I'd find stuff like Good Times and Adventures of Grandmaster Flesh and the Wheel of Steel for like two bucks. And so he, he introduced me to um, Charlie Tuna and Mark Seven because they're all kind of uh, in the same area of L.A. of Silver Lake, which is where this Marshall High is. What, and there was, what, what grade were you in? At I was this time? in um, 
ninth grade. So freshman in high school. Yeah. At Marshall. At Marshall. And I'd already been buying, like, hey, the, the, the warehouse in Tower Records was dope. Like, I already had James Brown records um, and, like, Big Beat Billy Squire and stuff like that. So I was bringing that to these jams. These guys were like, yo, who's this fucking 14-year-old white kid with fucking Bob James in his bag? And so I met, <laughs> right. I met Charlie yeah. in 87, and, um, and this guy was like, oh, if you play this, that James Brown record, Don't Tell It, he'll, he'll, he'll get happy and, and come up and talk to you. I was like, he seems like a cool dude. <laughs> right. So I played it, and uh, he used to roller skate to it, apparently, in Chicago before he moved to L.A. And so oh, we, I'm asking him about that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On roller skates? Yeah, Charlie on roller skates, or at least he was at the roller rink. I don't know about his if he was skating, but probably long ass t-shirt on and shit, roller skating. Like arms, yeah, totally. Yeah, hell yeah, get out my way. <laughs> so, um, and then we all got together at my mom's house in the summer of '87. Dude, uh, shout out to your mom's house first of all. It used to go down at your mom's house. Oh, yeah. no. My mom's house must have been built on some kind of Indian burial ground because the energy that was produced there across many groups. I mean, you know, Ozo, J5, Unity, um, Volume 10. Us. Uh, Y'all, yeah. The yeah. uh, um, uh, Concentration Joint. Yeah. Um, also, uh, the first take of Alphabet Aerobics was done there, which I found on a, on a DAT. Wow. It's a totally different take, and it's just as good, maybe a little bit better. Um, wow. Not even not, – not better, but ju it's just different, and I'm not used to it, so I, I got psyched. The right. The one that came out is amazing. But um, – Okay. Yeah, so All kinds of gems. Anyway, so we got together in the summer of 87, and another guy in the group was Sun Doobie. Mm. So Unity Committee was, was – Sun Doobius. Sun Doobie from Sun Doobius. Back then, he was called Jason. So it was Jason, Marv, Mark Seven, Charlie Tuna, and myself, five people. And, um, and we made this freestyle tape. I'm cutting up breaks because I had like ultimate breaks and beats and my, you know, James Brown records and whatever. Right. And cutting that up. And Charlie isn't rapping at all. He's playing the background. Everybody else, Marv kills it. Mm. You know, Marv kills it. And then um, I was like, what's up with this dude's front? And like, he's all like, he's got a cool leather coat on and he's tall and like looks like he can bus but he ain't doing shit You're talking about tuna yeah i was like yeah. fuck that dude he's, he's he, he he can't rap because he, he didn't grab the mic he was just trying to suss out the situation because the next time he came over and, and and busted i was like oh shit all right yeah so we got to figure this shit out like let's make some tapes and that first tape somebody says he has it i don't have it i got to get that first freestyle tape from 87 it's 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 out there somewhere some a friend of ours i don't know how he got it but anyway so then we just started making more tapes. 87 turns into 88. I get a sampler. I use my dad's four-track reel-to-reel. Wow. Then he handed me down, and I started making demos. Start, you know, my crates get a little deeper as I, you know, start getting older and can drive, you know, to record stores as opposed to, like, taking the bus. What were you driving back then? My mom's uh, 77 Caddy Seville. Oh, with fuck yeah. This, this maroon velour. All, all the realest people I know, all the realest people I know at one point in their life drew, drove a Cadillac. All the realest people I oh, know. No, no. Anyway. What is Go it ahead. about? What is it about the Cadillac? Anyway. So, uh, so yeah. So then we started to shop demos to labels and we did that for a few years. Jive records uh, in 88. 
um, Mark Seven worked at Subway, and Carmelita Sanchez comes in with a Def Jam jacket on. So he was like, "Oh, she seems like somebody I should talk to." They strike up a convo, they exchange numbers, and he and I remember Mark was like, "Yo, I met this person that works at Jive, and we should give them our tape." And they were like, "Great, what tape? We don't have like a tape that we could just give a fucking label." So we made. I remember. I think it was like the summer of 88 or like the fall of 88, we're like, we, we really concentrated on making this three song demo. Mm. And so we came up with our first songs and we gave it to Carmelita. She played it for Neil Portnow and, and Latia and everybody there at the time. And it was on, we were, we were about to get signed. They financed a, a better quality demo. Like they were like, we like what you did. We think the sound quality is not as good. So we're going to finance or we're going to, help you make a better sounding demo. So, really so Jive, Jive gave you a demo deal? No, it wasn't really a demo deal now that I think about it, because I think actually Marv's dad paid for it. So I don't know what the <laughs> fuck. So Marv's dad gave you a demo deal? Yeah, he gave us a demo deal. <laughs> um, but uh, I remember it was a studio called Marvic. It was on Hollywood Boulevard, and they had a little cassette four-track recorder. Marvic? Marvick, yeah, it was uh, this guy, Mar uh, some, somebody in Victor, I can't remember. There's actually a record label that they did where they put out a couple of independent things. Anyway. Well, you, you know what, though? Sorry, not to interrupt, but, but coming out of that, like, like that era is, you know, coming out of the 70s and into like the 80s and 90s, the OGs yeah. were still combining names. For no, like totally. Yeah, 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 right. It's like Taster or uh, Rojak. <laughs> right. So, like, if it was you and me starting a label in the in the 70s or 80s, it would be Katerix or some shit like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> or, or, like, uh, I don't know, Born Mist, you know, or some shit. <laughs> Born Mist? Sounds like uh, a fragrance. <laughs> anyway, sorry, continue, man, continue. So, um, okay, so we did that. Meanwhile, I, my demo sounded better because I was using a four-track reel-to-reel. They were using a cassette, but I was like, whatever. And then we made another demo, and this is where things started to heat up. They were like, this is going to go down. We're going to sign you guys. Like, it was looking really legit. Wow. And, and then something happened where the song that they really liked was called United We Stand, and it used the Jimi Hendrix Band of Gypsies sample that um, Digital Underground used. They came out. And it screwed it all up because it was like, you guys are too similar to them. Mm. Um, and when you think about it, visually, we were very similar. Like Charlie had the same kind of build and complexion of Shock G. I look like DJ Fuse to this day. Money B is Mark Seven. Oh my God. I mean, and, and come on, like the looks were very similar. And the song used the same sample. So they were like, forget it. Dead That's funny, man. And um, I was like, well, shit, man, that's a fucking stroke of bad luck. We look like these dudes and we sound like these dudes and we don't even right. know these dudes. Yeah. Um, and so then we just ended up doing more demos. We, we were talking to Duff Marlowe over at Chrysalis. He had brought Gangstar over. Um, and this was about 92. Wow. And then I'm trying to think of some other labels where we were close. But, it, it, you know, nothing really cracked. I mean, shopping demos to labels is a fucking joke. It always was. Yeah. It wasn't until we put out our own record where people were like, hey, we want to sign you. Like, in yeah. fact, Jive expressed interest, I think, after we put out our own record. Like, I think Mike N was there and, you know, um, 
and he was a huge supporter of us and, and the whole underground scene, no matter where. So Mike uh, Nardone, you talking yeah. about Mike? Yeah, shout out to Mike Nardone. Totally. Sure. Yeah. Um, but um, at that at that point, we were being approached by different labels wanting to re-release our record, wanting to do you know um, other deals. Okay, okay but at the, at that point, it was you, Tuna, and Mark Seven. At that point, yeah, it things had. Uh, uh, you know, Sun Doobie obviously went and did and his thing. What was the name yeah. of the group at that time? Uh, what, Funk Dubious? No, no. You, Mark Seven, and Tuna. Oh, it was still Unity Committee. Unity Committee. Okay. And so then, so then when did you, okay, so then you got this, you started getting interest from, from labels and so on, and you were shopping demos and so forth. But then when did you start to meet, like, Soup? And, like, how did that, and Newmark, all right. and how did yeah, that in all 90, come together? In 91, we found a place called The Good Life. Uh, which was a place in South Central Los Angeles. Yeah. And it was a health food cafe where um, a woman and her son decided to do a hip hop night on Thursdays. Mm-hmm. And so I'm from Hollywood. I, you know, I don't really know much about it. And then um, my friends from Darkleaf were like, yo, fools are busting. I was like, how, how hard can people be busting at a health food store? I don't, I don't think <laughs> Right. And totally. so, like, I didn't. I was like, yeah, you can go and, you know, have fun. But then I went yeah. October 91, and the first thing I see is Mike and I doing Seven Seal and then Peace and um, Ganja K doing shit. I was just like, oh, I'm coming every week. This shit was the most amazing, different. Because I was an encyclopedia for hip-hop at that point. Like, I had gone every summer to New York and, like, trying to, you know, learn as much as I could and bring it back. And right. I collected everything and when I, I mean I don't I don't think that you can really say enough about the impact or the importance of the good life cafe yeah I mean, I'm you, saying and there's so many different aspects to it that are still relevant today but um it was something brand new that even me considering myself an expert of the genre and the culture this was completely uncharted territory for me like I walked in there I was like I I never heard no shit like this and I've heard right. it all right and um and I was proud because it was, it was from my hometown, which I always kind of, I was into East Coast hip hop. I was, I mean, I loved LA, but I kind of dismissed it a little bit because I took it for granted. Mm. You know what I mean? So like NWA and like all this stuff, I was like, I love it, but not as much as I love the East Coast shit. Right. This was the first time when I walked in, I go, this shit's better than everything. Mm. And it's from my hometown and I'm right. fucking proud of it. So I wanted to submerge myself in it. And I went every week to like, you know, ear hustle and just like came knowledge because there was something spiritually, there was something spiritually kind of like I couldn't put my finger on. And then recently we had an anniversary with Ava who did the documentary. Right. And B plus who was there at the time. Um, was shout, speaking to B plus, shout out to Ava. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. both incredible people, but B plus yeah. was saying something about the elders and the spirit of the elders and how, that spirit infiltrated the artists at The Good Life. I mean, you had the jazz cats like Horace Tapp, right. Billy Higgins from, you know, that whole, just, you know, a few blocks away. And that energy with what Micah was doing, JMD was kind of a bridge from the jazz world. Yes. Hip hop world being a drummer and a producer for, for Fellowship. Like it was also mixed with jazz. Like I felt like I was at an old jazz club when I went to Right. I mean, Lamert. Park in itself just has such an incredible history. You know what I mean? It's just, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you felt that. Like, it was so uh, palpable. 
Right. And even though I didn't really have any reference point for it back then, I felt it, this kind of whatever it was where I was like, this is something I felt protected. Like mm. you know, I, was, I was the only white guy there and people like, Oh, did you ever feel threatened? No, because I, I felt protected by the love of music. And I shared that with these people that might have problems with me, but we have a common bond that's so strong. That was like, I didn't feel like there was ever, anything was ever going to jump off. Was this dreadlock era cut chemist? Oh yeah. You know that. You still have those? I do. I have them in a bag somewhere. Yeah, no, you're famous for having a full head of dreads in the 90s, cutting them off, and then saving them somewhere. I'm famous for that? In a a Vons bag, somewhere in your house. You have a a sack of dreads from the 90s. Not only that, I have a sack of, like, different era dreads. Like, like I have another sack of ones that I like cut off, kind of, because they weren't working. So I started them again. I have those. Because they weren't working. <laughs> because they weren't working. Those were like the Will Dog uh, from Ozomali. You know, he was my dread guru. He started them before I did. I was like, hey man, that looks pretty cool. How do you do that? You put like toothpaste you in your hair and shit. A toothpaste. Bro, not, not. Oh wow. Not to digress, but I was at that gig that 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 Ozo gig that um, you guys used to do a weekly, uh, years later, you guys used to, not too many years later, but years the, later. Uh, Dragonfly, remember that, wasn't that? Um... At Dragonfly. Yeah. I was, I was in the crowd and you had your dreads and like a hat. Yeah. And then I saw you take it off and throw it at somebody and the dreads were attached to the attached hat. To the hat. You were yeah. at that and, day. It was the big and, reveal. Bro, and it was like it was like HR Geiger. <laughs> it was like when um when Ripley is being chased by the baby alien and somebody caught that shit and started crying because they were so happy that they Oh, you think yeah, it was like a face hugger. Yeah. And somebody caught that shit and they couldn't they were so juiced that they had caught cut chemist dreads that they started crying and shit. You know what I mean? Anyway, so continue with the good life. So um so yeah, okay. So that was '91 and '92. I saw these guys called uh, Rebels of Rhythm, right? And it was Zakir and Akil mm-hmm. and another guy named Shawnee Mac. And so it was three of them. And who you know, doesn't know a Shawnee Mac in their history? Everybody knows a Shawnee Mac. Anyway, continue. So uh, they had a different style, you know. Where yes. these guys were kind of a throwback to Treacherous Three. They, they were harmonizing, you know, and I loved old school hip hop. So it just, I, it really resonated with me. So I hit them up and I was like, we should do a, I should do a joint because I, I think I could kind of kill that style musically at, and um, uh, it would be a good pairing with, with your vocal style. And so when we decided to finally do it, I think it was like actually a year later, I made the beat and the beat was actually inspired by Area Code by De La Soul. I got so hyped. Oh, Wow. I got so hyped off that Balloon Mind State album, particularly Area Code, when they combine new rap language baseline with Smoke and Chiba Chiba. Like, they put them together. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so fucking dope. I'm going to make a beat right now. And, um, and I made Unified Revolution, the beat in probably like 10 minutes. So, so let, me, let me ask you this, because I haven't heard any of those old, any of the old um, Unity Committee songs. Okay. Like, Obviously, everybody 
knows Jurassic Five as having like you know that that nod to the old school style, right? Is that what you guys were doing, or did you get that from Soup and from Akil? That's more from Soup and Akil. You know, okay. Charles and, and and Mark were more like what was going on at the Good Life, but okay. you know, our 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 shit was more rooted in like. Um, more like the late eighties, like Rakim Kane era, you right. know? like that was our romantic period, so to speak. Like as far as like the beats and the rhymes, you know, and that's how we formed. And so, um, but as styles change, you know, Charlie started to get more like reggae influenced and, uh, or I should say dance hall influenced. And then, you know, the beats became more like boom bappy, you know, naturally. But I, I guess what I want to know is, you know, if you guys were coming from, uh, if, if the three of you, meaning you, Charlie, and Mark, were coming from more of a a, a current, at that time, hip-hop lane, mm -hmm. that's the lane that you guys were in, and then Soup and Akil were in this old school lane, what made the three of you guys decide, okay, well, let's... All right, so it's hot in their lane, you know. When I did the beat, when I did the beat and I and I gave it to them, they dug it, Rebels of Rhythm, and um, and so I said, you know, I think this needs to have a third act to it, uh, and I think that I, I just, you know, asked, asked politely, hey, could you feature Unity Committee on this on this track? You know, since mm -hmm. I did the beat, it'd be cool. Like, yeah. let's do a big collaboration, and so that way it could be kind of, and it doesn't stay in like you know harmony throwback land it it kind of has right um layers to it not to say that they were you know rebels was like a complete throwback and that's all they were yeah that would be you know a disservice to their, their credibility they were awesome um but um for that particular track because i was kind of steering it in a in a old school because that's what i heard and so they did that over that beat and so I was like, I want it to be more than that. So maybe can we, you know, feature my guys. And when we feature them, you, you know, you guys can figure out the arrangement. And so it's a Rebels of Rhythm song up until about two thirds. And then it, boom, it switches with Charlie and Mark doing a back and forth, really intricate kind of a thing. Like imagine like the way the Beasties or Run DMC would trade off, but it was like really intricate. It was like, Charlie, Charlie, Mark, Charlie, Mark, Charlie, Mark kind of thing. So, and so. then, and then at the end, after that, they all come together where they trade like, what is it, like two bars, or it's like da 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 da. Next guy, next guy, next guy. Soup, 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 soup. I'll, I'll kill da da da. And it gets everybody starts intertwining. And I was like, oh, this is great. So like, from from an MC standpoint, it really has multiple things going on. And then the beat changes. And um, you know something, just hearing you describe that process of. Mm -hmm. Uh, just hearing you describe that interplay, that interchange, you know, right. and me knowing you and me knowing that part of the, the good life as part of your personal history, you mm -hmm. know, which the good life was all about rapping. You know, it was all, I mean, I never went, I never been, but the footage that I've seen and the things that people told me, it was like, it was all about that I saw. It was all about, it seemed to me like, really the, the more creative you could be as an MC, the better your chances were, you know? Well, yeah, no one liked, no one liked anything that sounded like anybody else over there. So you really had to come original. And that's why, you know, even though it, some things might've been not good life sounding, like not everybody was like, 
But right. that didn't matter because if you were original, they gave you a chance. Right. And there were, there were tons of people that didn't have that sound. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think probably most people do associate the good life sound with freestyle fellowship or. Right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, totally. or you know, kind of like the, the chopping, you know, as they say, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but the, the point that I was trying to make earlier was that of all the DJs and, and all the producers, that I've worked with, mm -hmm. I think that you, and, and it's clear just by the way that you were just describing, you know, sort of this interplay between, between Tuna and Mark, you mm -hmm. know, and I, I just know this from working with you. I don't think I know another DJ slash producer that has a better understanding of MC. Of oh, the, wow. Thank you. Of the people that I've worked with, you know okay. what I mean? Because a lot of producers, they don't, and this is not a knock on producers, because you could say the same thing about rappers not having that sort of inherent or intrinsic knowledge of production. But right. for you, when I hear you talk about rapping, it's not just about stay in pocket, you know, make sure the timing's cool. Right. You know, for you, it's like, when I when when we're in the studio or I hear you talk about other rappers, it's like you know lines that the rapper said. You know, go back to that line where you said da 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 da, or or and you understand the rhythm and the cadence more so than any other DJ slash producer I think that I've ever worked with. You know, uh, yeah, I think that's secretly because I want to be a rapper. Uh, is that what it is? I'm pretty sure. Is that a DJ thing? No, it's a me thing. Okay. <laughs> it's a me thing. And it, it's finally kind of took its first step in last year because Tuna and I do a show together. Mm. And I, I get on the mic now. Hello. I mean, I'm not, it's a baby step. I'm doing a G rap verse, right? But I'm kind of killing it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, and then I was like, hey, Charlie, this is fun. Maybe I could rap some more. Maybe yeah. we could do a song together. Like maybe I can start recording verses and um, I'm open to whatever because all, and, and, and to your point, there was a moment in um, Unified where the harmony on turn up the radio. Right. It was slight, like one of the guys was slightly dissonant or something. And I was just like, no, I hear it like this. So I, I remember doing some kind of trickery Yes. Um, some transposing to make it work musically. Yes. And so I, was, I always spent a lot of time um, with the way a, a rapper sits on a track, whether it's harmonically or timing-wise. It's right. really important because my favorite moments are in rap are, are, is, that, is, that, is the vocal. It isn't, it isn't necessarily the beat. I mean, I love breakdancing and electro music, but when it became Jungle Brothers rapping over records, that's when I wanted to make records. It wasn't, you know, I didn't want to plug in a keyboard and a fucking drum machine. I wanted to fucking cut up a record and have an MC bust. I mean, it was so minimal. And so, but the thing that carries it is the rapper. Yes. And so I think that's what sells this music or back then it did anyway. So um, I, I took a lot of time with that and shooting all the way forward to Thin Line with um, Nelly Furtado on the mm -hmm. Our Numbers album. I took that 
session. And, you know, I was like, this is really important for me. I'm going to do the same thing I did with Unified, but with Nelly and the guys. So now I'm taking a big name and I'm not transposing. It wasn't like she was out of key or anything, but I had to pick what takes had to be layered with other takes mm-hmm. for it to sound natural. Right. So it didn't sound studio created. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it had to blend with the guys and the parts they would sing and what parts worked. And, you know, obviously I had a lot more tracks to, to work with back then because we did it in a huge studio. And I remember it took me like a month where I was just like, this has to be the perfect, this is my shot to make the perfect <laughs> vocal, <laughs> rap, R&B, right. whatever this is going to be, it's going to be perfect. And I'm happy with it. You know, it's, it was an awesome turnout. But I spent so much time because I love when vocals are absolutely 100% perfect. That's awesome, man. And, I, you know, I think that you also came up in an era where you started to see a lot of DJs that were becoming artists and taking the lead, you know, like obviously like Shadow and yourself. And, you know, there was this whole wave of DJs that were now recording artists. You know what I mean? And it was. Yeah, that's true. Uh, You know, at a time when we were fighting back for our place in hip hop culture because corporate rap was getting rid of the DJ. Yeah. So it was that, um, well, shout out to Dave Paul uh, for the bomb party because we were there. Well, I was there mostly because of the um, return of the DJ comp, which was his whole kind of political stake in the whole, well, you know, let's bring the DJ back here. Yes. And, and because that's an important part. And, um, yeah. and so that's when it was like, okay, we're not. And then you get scratch pickles and beat yeah. junkies and, and all these DJ crews, but it was almost like, yeah, well, that's awesome that you're letting us back in the rap scene guys, but guess what? Fuck you. We're going to start making our own records. Right. Totally. No, you know, we're, we're going to produce our beats and be our own artists. Um, and so it, it was in the, in the early nineties or the early to more like mid nineties, there was a split where there were rap groups and then there were DJ groups and right. they almost didn't intermingle anymore. That's right. I mean, it suddenly, you know, there was this renaissance where DJs were now considered artists. Yeah. You know? And there were like very DJ centric events. There were obviously yeah. DJs that made their own al- albums. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That didn't have any vocals, you know, instrumental right. albums that didn't have any vocals. And so, you know, I, I think that, you have been able to sort of straddle that fence, you know, like you can make cut chemist records. Yeah. You know, I, that was carefully crafted. Um, You know, I had a chance. I remember James Lavelle hit me up in 97 or 98, you know, to do a solo deal with Moax. And I, and I was like, I'm not, I'm still doing J five things. You know, like I can't embark in a solo career yet anyway um because i i still have a vision that i need to fulfill for j5 i I think the ep had just dropped okay um you know things were really cracking in 97 it was like the number song remix j5 ozomali was happening at the same time so it was like and then the deep concentration um album so kind of solidified me as a solo artist so i had a solo thing going i had uh, a rap group i had this weird latin we don't know what it is yet, group. Shout to Mark Hurley, by the way. Shout to Mark Hurley, who was a, a pioneer in so many ways. But yes, continue. Well, for, for the San Francisco scene, it was like, that was the yeah. DJ equivalent of the good life. Exactly. 
Totally. Yes. You walk yeah. in there and you're, you're going to see combinations of DJs that shouldn't be in the same room together. Like right. you know, Wally and set with D style. And then finally, you know, that he was like, well, let's put a hip hop DJ with a hip hop DJ. So he put me in shortcut together and it was like, it blew right. up and it was great. If it weren't for Mark Hurley, I probably, you know, wouldn't be as known as I am because hundred percent. I, I, I almost felt like a resident at Future Primitive gigs. Yeah. A, a lot of people would not be as known as they are today without, yeah. without I mean, you talk about shortcuts, Z Trip, yourself, Shadow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, yeah. a lot of people a lot of, like you said, it, it was like the good life for DJs. A lot of people, a lot of great DJs who went on to become legends cut their teeth. Totally. At Future Primitive, yeah. 100%. Yeah, but continue, man. Uh, <clears throat> so let's see, where were we? Um, so J5 uh, doing the vocals, editing the vocals for Unified and wanting to be a, a closet, or I was not a closet rapper. I wanted to be a closet rapper. I couldn't, I couldn't pick up a pen. I hated to read or write. Well, let me, let me ask you about this, man, because also you're one of the DJs and one of the producers that, that no, I don't feel like anybody's championed LA rap, underground LA rap more than you have. I mean, you've archived all these videotapes, like stuff with just incredible footage of yourself, Tuna, Mike and Nime, a, a lot of the stuff that was used in the Good Life movie, I noticed. Mm -hmm. Those were things used to play me at your house back in the day. You know? All right. And, yeah. and, I, yeah. and, and I know you still work with Mike and Nine, or you've worked with him recently. Let, can we talk about Freestyle Fellowship for, for, for a second? Because I don't... I could talk about Freestyle Fellowship for about a year straight. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think people really understand how important they were, particularly for us in California, on the West Coast, in the underground scene. I mean, they did things that will probably never be replicated to this day. Yeah, you can't. They, they, there was no formula. Right. Um, it's, it's kind of almost hard to talk about because you had to be there to really, to, to be able to like kind of form thought, like a real thought of what was happening. It was, you know, their records, they make great records, but the genius in them was really their live performance and their sense of improvisation. Mm. You know, um, sometimes it didn't work at all. Sometimes it was the best thing, but it was never mediocre. It always made an impression one way or another. <clears throat> but the one thing that I always appreciated about them, and I remember seeing them in 91 and I was blown away, mm. uh, was the fact that they were, it wasn't like a performance be success based on practice, practice, practice. It was more something I couldn't put my finger on that I didn't understand where they just kind of talked this, unique language amongst themselves where they already even though they never went over the music it was it was it was on a whole other level spiritually i just don't think i i've ever seen an mc or a rap group so willing to jump off a cliff and that's what i'm saying ever, and if they land alive cool if they don't cool you and, know yeah and you know a lot of people can't understand it i mean the, the way people re you know as far as like mass influence people like repetition right they like consistency sure they like we, safe guilty you know we all do yeah absolutely we all we yeah. all do so when you take the genius of fellowship which is not consistent mm -hmm. it's not safe it's not a branding monster to where they were focused on campaigning and touring they were focused on the art amongst themselves 
as friends and how to make themselves better just within themselves. And they did that. But then when it grows outside of that, like, and you ask people, well, do you understand that? No one's gonna. Yes. No one's gonna understand that. I mean, as far as like, when you talk about mass influence, now you can ask individual people outside of a mass group and, and say freestyle fellowship. And they'll be like, yeah, they were one of the most influential groups of my time. And you'll probably hear that from Buster Ron. You know, Snoop has gone on record going, yeah, I used to bump fellowship all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, people were checking for them like a motherfucker. And, um, you know, I heard, Dr. Dre, I heard Dr. Dre at one time almost signed them or, or something. No, I think, yeah, yeah, it was something like, I think Dr. Dre wanted them or wanted to mix the To Whom It May Concern album over again or something like that. Can you imagine that? Yeah, Dre was definitely trying to get at them. So they were hanging out with John Singleton. Like, in 92, forget it, dude. They own L.A. Yes. Micah was at every club. Mm-hmm. If someone was performing, he was there getting on the mic, like getting on the mic like testing fools. He was hungry. Everybody was hungry. And, um, and so, yeah, when they, when they got their fourth and Broadway deal, what do they do? And this is the most amazing jump off a cliff scenario. So they're already, like, the most fierce battle rappers, right? Like, yeah. battling all those dudes is like shadow boxing. You just couldn't figure a countermaneuver because you yeah. just don't know what fuck's going to hit you. Yeah. So their demo tape got leaked. Who did I get it from? Uh, I can't remember. Somebody like Fat Jack or something. I can't remember. No, 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 no. I got it from Dino. I got it from Dino, Volume 10. He got the Volume demo. 10. So he gave me the demo tape of the uh, Inner City uh, Griots album before it came out. It was just called Heavyweights at the time. I don't think they came up with the title. The very first song on that fucking demo tape was Park Bench People. Mm. I was like, but at the time, think about if you've never heard that song before and you just heard To Human Make Concern and you've seen them kill fools. And the first thing you, you hear is boom. I'm like, okay. I'm like, whoa. Right. See an old man sitting up. I'm like, what? That's an interesting choice. And it was a band, which nobody had heard, really, at that time. No, you know? Yeah, right. Although, I, since I was close to the situation, I was like, oh, shit, JMD got right. his band. This is Underground Railroad. Right. Oh, so yeah. they're really doing this, but not in like a, um, you know, because I hated rap bands. I hated live band rap. It just didn't translate to me very well at that time. You know, it since has, you know, gotten better, but... Yeah. At that time, like, what are we, like, brand new heavies, right? When they did the heavy yeah. problem experience, it was cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it wasn't, like, it didn't emulate the power of, like, samples and drum machines, like, totally. squad. Yeah. Uh. yeah. It was a different so aesthetic, when, man. At that time, it was a totally different aesthetic, man. It sounded so different. Yeah. It sounded, like, it sounded tinny. It's right. not like live band today. Um, yeah. But anyway. This was this wasn't trying to be that. This was trying to be like a Gil Scott Heron record or something. Yes, you know. I mean? You know, the minute I heard it, I was like, I thought Gil Scott Heron. I thought right. Leon Thomas. I thought this is this is nailing it as far as that. But I'm like, yo, but it's such a fucking chance taker because it's not what they're known for. You, you know, I think when, and when it's I just was one of the dudes. It's not even the whole group. Now, mind you, they changed the arrangement of the album where that's not first. But on this tape, that was first. I was like, shit, it's just Micah. And it, you know, right. he's doing a rendition of Red Clay with fucking these crazy vocals. And he's nailing it. Yeah. And he's whistling. And yeah. he's doing this. Like, he's doing all this scat shit. And, um, yes. and, like, there were other songs on that record that followed suit. Like, 
Danger, the original version, which I think was featured later on Project Bloat or something, but it was like a total vaudevillian jazz experience, like danger, don't get close to right. anger, with minor to aim and bring. Ah, you know, I was like, I, I felt like I was watching a play. Well, you, you know, there was what was really interesting, man, was I was a DJ at KDBS in the, in the early 90s at the college radio station at UC Davis, and we got the, you know, the, the Jeff Chang, DJ Zen, yeah. came, came in with To Whom It May Concern, right? And I, I didn't understand it. They played the album. I didn't understand it. You know what I mean? It was this freestyle fellowship. It was on Sun Music or whatever. Was that the label it was on? Yeah. Right? yeah. Uh-huh. And Gab was the one that really hit me. He sat me down and he was like, listen to what these dudes are doing. You have to really yeah. listen to what these dudes are doing. Because to me, you know, at the time, like you, I was really on some East Coast shit. I was not from L.A., so I, I didn't go to the good life. You know what I mean? So I didn't, I didn't understand the context. You know what I mean? I certainly didn't understand, like, you know, just the, the impact that they were having on the underground culture in Southern California. I wasn't there. You know what I mean? And Right. But Gab was the one that really was like, I think when I listened to Seventh Seal for the first time, and Gab was like, listen to what this dude is doing, you know? You tried it. That. that was my intro. That was my introduction. And I heard right. it on Mike Nardone's show, and I was just like, what the fuck is this? Yes. And, then, and so then I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. And then when, when Inner City Griots came out, and I saw the video for, for Boundaries, and I could see kind of, I could kind of visually see what their vibe was, you know what I mean? And it was like, once we right. have the knowledge of several people, then we could be free, nobody could ever enter the boundary. You know, and I saw that. You know, and then I saw and then here comes Daddy O in there. So I could see the contrast between what I was listening to five years ago. And this is what is happening now. You know what I mean? That then I was like, that's exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's that's so spot on. The, the fucking Daddy O inclusion. Yes. I, I was I was offended by it just because I was like. Oh man, I was all in this like new shit, and then you had to make me remind you had to remind me of like where where I was. Yeah. But you're right. In context, it gives you a placeholder of like, look how far it's come. Right. Since we were listening to Stetsasonic. It was fucking thrilling. You know, it was thrilling to watch that shit. You know what I mean? And um, yeah. just all this, you, you know, we will not tolerate. It was just like, I, no, I, nobody had ever done that before. You know what I mean? And it was such a yeah. statement. And I, I just, I really, everybody that I knew, once I got it, you know, and I tell when I whenever I see Mike to this, to this day, whenever I see Mike and I to this day, I'm just like, hey, man, no, you know me, you know, for real. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's the only way that I can put it, you know? And right. I think. You know, I'm I'm glad that we sort of say, shit, we share this freestyle fellowship. You know, love, Phantom, you know? yeah, frenzy. I, I I'm a fanatic. I always have been, and and you know, a lot of the musical direction that I've gone in my whole life is because I want to make DJ music. I want to make the equivalent of what they did in my own music. You know, so like, how can I make something that is out or you know just a, a jump off a cliff, like you said how can I make jump off a cliff music like these guys did, but in a DJ context. And so when I made lesson six, yeah. that was that it was a reaction to freestyle fellowship. Like, I'm like, how can I challenge the DJ 
world like they did the rap world. Right. You know, introducing time signature changes and uh, music theory and something that's so much more academic than just, you know, yeah, and I think that that's what you've always been about, you know, in my opinion is, you know, you're not, because I know your personality, obviously, we've known each other for a long time, like I said, and I know your music, and I know the arc of your career, and I think mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the things about you that I, I really appreciate musically is that, you know, that when you look at that wave of we were just talking about of like those DJ slash producers that, that sort of came of age in, in the mid nineties, mid to late nineties. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was either, a lot of it was very cerebral, you know what I mean? And a lot of it was kind of academic, you know, it was like very intense and you had to just sort of listen and it wasn't made for, you know, you didn't really move your body to it. You know what I mean? It was just sort of like, you kind of watched it. You know, you didn't really. It was almost, yeah, yeah, it was kind of gothic too. It was like yes, depressed kids in the bedroom that are afraid of sunlight, um, right? Making music. <laughs> <laughs> so, like guys that you could tell only spent time not just in a cubicle in the studio, but in life they were just sort of in a cubicle. You know, and they I mean? were speaking themselves. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. I, but I, I think for you, I, and I've always thought of you as like a people person. You know, and and you were the guy that. Like I said, you were always able to sort of straddle that fence between, you know, you understood that world of DJ produced music, you know, those those are, and you could go there and you did go there. Then you were also able to have fun, you know, you your personality, you know, that that sort of, you're in my opinion, you're an extrovert, you know, in which a lot of a lot of guys that I know are not, you know, and so uh, I wish I wish my girlfriend could hear you say that. That's, oh really? I agree with you. I'm. Yeah. I, I. I am, and I'll tell you right now where, where all that comes from is, um, you know, I gravitate towards community-based anything, mm. um, and a lot of it came from listening to Red Alert shows. Um, yes. And so the Red Alert shows, and even Chuck Chill Out, the shows that I when I went to New York and I listened to, they sounded like they were having a party in that studio, oh. and it was translating over the airwaves into my radio box as I was alone in my hotel room. Mm -hmm. But I didn't feel alone. I felt like I was at that party. And so that, I was like, hip hop is about community. Mm -hmm. They're on the radio where, you know, usually you'd be like one guy like Venus Flytrap. No one's here but me. And, you know, we're, I'm going to play you this music. I'm lonely and you're lonely. And I'm gonna play this. <laughs> this was not that. This was yeah. like, hey, man. Keras one just stepped in the fucking place. Yo, Miss Melody's here too. You can hear their 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 gold chains jangling, right. and they're on the table cutting it up and they're laughing. I was like, that's the kind of radio show I'm down with. So, yes. how can I make that into a record? And then you look at the the native tongue fetish and the um, the flavor unit. I was like, those are communities. You yeah. know, those are a lot of people contributing to make art, building something together. Um, Good life, same thing, you know? So, I mean, when I get into musical projects, yeah, I do the ones by myself, but the ones that I really enjoy doing is when it's a collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. Like when Wanham and J5 came together, that was an amazing weekend. Yeah. You know, we were all sitting, I have a couple of pictures where we're all like sitting at my mom's dining room table trying to like plot out a song and, you know, yeah. got a kill recording with that weird plant in the background. But um, 
you know, <laughs> right. well, recognizing, you know, like any, anything that, Ozomali, another big group. Like if you look at like the consistency throughout my, my life, it is, I'd say the only thing that didn't involve, um, the only project that really didn't involve a community was my Warner Brothers solo record. Mm-hmm. And that was because I had just left Jurassic Five and right. and Uzo Motley. Like all, I was kind of like betting it all on myself because I had to, because every okay. everybody was either touring relentlessly and I had to leave. Um, so I was like, shit, all I got is me, and I'll call a couple of friends and see if they can get. I was like, Edon, can you can you get on a verse? And he was like, cool. Do you want me to get left too? I was like, definitely. I know him. Can you call him, and yeah. uh, and and then you know. Uh, what and then my friend Terry from that I've known since I was twelve, uh, you know, and that was it. You know, everything else was just like man in the mirror moment. You know, right? It, it's <laughs> funny though, man. Like to hear you say that. So, so would you say that that you but that you're more comfortable though in a group context as a, as an artist? Or are you more comfortable in a group context rather than? Yeah, I am because I know I know when I feel like I know when it's the right time to lead and when to follow. Like I really mm-hmm. enjoy not being the alpha. Mm. I really enjoy being the alpha, but it's when it's time to be that and when it's time to not be that. Because if everybody's trying to steer the ship, it's going to crash. But when you kind of got to go, and this is, this is a great example is working with Josh. You know, it's like he has a lot of concepts and he wants to, you know, put together and arrange a mix a certain way that I don't really see it that way. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to hear you out. Because it sounds like you're pretty passionate about how you want this to roll out. I'm not mm-hmm. mad. And so I sit back and I'm like, damn, that, I don't know if that works. And then I start to kind of see, like, I, I start to, as time goes, it takes me a while to see how he, he's envisioning this thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. That's dope. I wouldn't have thought of that. Awesome. And then he'll be like, I don't, but I don't know what to do here. I was like, all right, I know what to do here. I'll jump mm-hmm. in. Boom. Give me the wheel. You know, and then we'll pass it back and forth at that point and, and build something together. And I, and I love that. I love when to knowing when to move forward and to step back, move forward and yeah. step back. It's a dance, man. And, and it's great as long as it's not forced. And those relationships with people, as you get into bigger groups, it gets harder. But it's still just kind of coordination of, you know, egos and, and just, you know, respect. And, you know, it's like it's real fragile, as you know. I mean, just just working in a group, right? Making a song in itself, you and know, not I mean? have expectations. Like my yeah. most fondest memories of doing music is when J Five was together, and we didn't know what the fuck. Like no one, we're like, we're gonna do a song today because we love it. We're not gonna release it. We're not gonna make money. We're just gonna do it because we want to. That was amazing. Yeah. There's, I have, there's a funny story, man. When, um, when later that day came out about a, about six months after it came, uh, maybe a little bit earlier, about six months after it came out, my then manager and I, we were starting to get interest from Warner brothers. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think you were on like year two of making your solo album at that time or something like that. It happened. You mean of the four years it took me to make it? Wow. Yes. Right. Yes. And, and one, and, Warner Brothers, obviously you were signed as a solo artist at Warner Brothers at that, t- at that time. My then manager and I, uh, we got called into Warner's because Warner's was interested in signing me. So, and I was like, oh great, that's awesome. They signed Cut, they did, you know, they did this, that. I'm, this is perfect, this will be awesome, you know what I mean? So we get in, I think we get in the elevator 
and we go to Tom Wally's office, right? Right. And I walk in, and this is the biggest fucking office I've ever seen in my life. Like, this office was, like, as big as my house at the time. Did he, did he have I mean? the, the caterers come in with the waiters and give you lunch? No. No, I don't think I was that important yet. You okay. know what I mean? I was yet to be signed. And I, I thought I was dope. Like, I came in there, you know, I had I ironed my jeans and shit. You know what I mean? I was wearing hard shoes. You know, like, I came in there. I thought I was looking cute, man. Anyway, so we came up. And we go in there, and there's this dude sitting, like, about a 1,000 feet away from me behind this desk. <laughs> and he's got, like, I, I thought I was talking to Jor-El. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? From the Superman the, movie. Silver, the silver, the, they call him the Silver Fox. Yes, bro. I thought I was talking to Jor-El. Like, I thought that whatever that fucking planet was with the crystals and shit that I just flew to, it's you know, to go meet Superman. Yeah. Superman's dad and shit, you know what I mean? And he was like, okay, so tell me a little bit about yourself. And he, I think he was like this. I think he was doing this thing. Oh, my God. Really? Right? Yeah, and I was like, well, da-da-da-da-da, and we started talking, and, and the, the A&R guy that wanted to sign us, you know, he was, trying, he was also trying to, to sell Tom on us, you know? Do you remember who the, the A&R guy was? Damon, I think his name was Damon. I don't remember, man. Damon... He was a really nice guy, though, man. It wasn't know? Xavier Ramos. No, no, no. And 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 my manager was like, "Yeah, well, he's done uh, seventy-five. 000, he sold seventy-five thousand albums independently so far, right? Which, if you could do that now, bro, you know, you'd be flying privately. Yeah, you don't need uh, Warner Brothers, right? Yeah. Okay. So, but at that time, and then Tom Wally goes like this. Mm. Uh. Okay, you know. And he said, you know, ultimately, I've got a guy that spent three years making a record right now oh, that's, yeah. in your, that's in your genre. So I fucked like, right And he'll come out and he'll probably do two to 300,000 units, you know? I mean, this is how record... I did 30. That's <laughs> right. And he was like... You know, he'll come out, he'll probably do two to three thousand two to three hundred thousand units. You know, I signed his other group, Jurassic Five, you know. And he was like, I don't know if I need another guy like that right now. You know? <laughs> right? Sorry. And I was just like, huh? I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and, and I was just like, I just got shot down by Jorel. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh, and that was my interesting story. And then, but, but the thing about that was like, I don't think your album came out for another two years after that. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and it made me wonder, was this truly a situation that Cut Chemist was comfortable in? Like a solo kind of... Uh, let, me, let me tell you something. I know, yeah, you're right. Uh, no, no, it's because I've never been on my own and I went through um a very tough time processing that like leaving like leaving home you know leaving the guys and being in a group where i could kind of be invisible yeah and not have to be responsible for any successes or failures but just kind of be like in the background and do my thing you know like produce beats but you know i chose to be a dj because i didn't want to i i didn't want like all this spotlight 
right? And so I left all that because I had this Warner Brothers deal. Now I left J5 in 2004. I had already been signed for two years. So I was like, guys, I got to get to this fucking record. And Dan Dalton's calling me like, okay, so our next tour schedule for, for, 20, for, for, for 2004, I was like, bro, I can't do it, man. I got I to gotta deliver this record. You know, mm -hmm. I have a lot of responsibility. Right. And so he was like, all right, you're going to call the guys and tell them? And I was like, I guess so. And yeah. so I remember calling Tuna and he came over to my house and he was like, you know, don't leave me. <laughs> no. Tuna said that? No, I mean, it was, no, he, he was just, you know, being supportive and also just kind of like, you know, the way I would be, you know, if it was like, yeah. man, you're leaving us? Like, you're like the founding member. Yeah. But so, you know what's so funny, man? Yeah. Every time, every time I talk about the, the cut chemist departure from Jurassic 5, Tuna has the exact same quote every single time. He has the exact same yeah. quote. He was Ice Cube. Cut Chemist was Ice Cube. You know, talking about like Ice Cube leaving NWA, you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know if it worked quite that way, but yeah. But, that, but that's the tuna quote that I love, you know, and I don't ever ask. I'm never like, okay, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? You know what right. I mean? But he was like, tuna, he cut, was, cut was Ice Cube. You know what well, I mean? Well, you know, it's, it's different. It's different. But uh, I, I just, I was super psyched to be a DJ of my caliber, which I didn't consider quite high at the time, that I was signed to a major corporate label. Right. I don't know anybody, I know DJs that have been acquired by big corporate labels in mergers, mm -hmm. but I don't know any DJ that's actually, as a solo artist, was signed mm -hmm. by a fucking giant like Warner Brothers. So I mm -hmm. felt like, this is a big fucking deal. And it was at that weird time where that's a good, that's a good point, man. That's a really good point. And I'll tell you right now, it wouldn't have happened without T-Ray. You know, T-Ray had beat down and he, that his was signed by Warner brothers through Tom Wally. And so T-Ray, he produced uh, the first Hozo Motley album. And he said, Hey man, you know, I got this beat down thing over at Warner brothers. I got Milano and, you know, why, why don't you get down on it? So I said, absolutely. So because T and Dan Dalton and Tom were all really tight, they wouldn't have fucking signed my ass. Mm. So I'm not like saying, oh, it's because of the, t I didn't give them a demo. It's not like I said, hey, so this is an example of what will be coming out on your label, Tom. Yeah. No, they, they were just basing it on, okay, I signed Jurassic 5 when I was at Interscope. They're doing pretty good. T-Ray thing seems to be, you know, pretty cool. He seems like an all right guy. And, and, and Dan Dalton, you know, um, I, I love uh, what he's done. So, yeah, I'll, I'll take the kid. And I was actually, I think I was the first artist that Tom signed when he moved to Warner Brothers. From wow. Oscar. So there you go. So, but it was tough, man. It was tough because doing shows on my own, like I had a total self-destruction where I was just like, you know, I was responsible for the successes and failures of my own, and I didn't have anybody to hide behind anyone. Mm -hmm. And so when you put me on, you know, showcases with, like, the secret machines and My Chemical Romance and all these other weird Warner Brothers showcases yeah. that didn't make any sense. And then also, at that time, the DJ was going through yet another transition where it was becoming more influencer-based and digital. Analog was going away, right. entered laptops, People like Lindsay Lohan are DJing. You know, you start to get like the whole um, um, Steve Aoki start, you know, bubbling up and DJ AMs where it's like, oh, he dated Nicole Richie and that's how right. people identified with him. 
and they yeah. didn't identify with him as a skilled fucking DJ because he was incredible yeah. as much in the in the in the like in the mainstream uh, populist. But after that kind of faded away, and he just kept kind of hitting people over the head with live performances. You know, AM is regarded as one of the greatest um, recipes. Yeah. But you start to kind of see that people were kind of looking at DJs as kind of this influencer culture. It changed, man. And I, you're right. And, and suddenly it wasn't about turntablism anymore. It wasn't about realness anymore. It wasn't about scratching anymore. It was kind of about slamming records. You know what I mean? That about, I saw. It was about the club. And the club. And also you can't, I mean, EDM blew up. You know what I mean? And that, that changed the whole game for DJs. You right. Know? And so now people were kind of looking at it like, oh, shit. Like a DJ that scratches, that was already a dinosaur by 2005. Yeah, yeah. And so 2006 comes out and people are like, what is this weird bedroom art project that Warner Brothers just put out? Like, mm. it, it, it was tethered to, you know, the traditional kind of hip-hop DJ sense, but it really also wasn't. Like, it was... It was experimental. It was an experimental yeah. record. Yeah. And, um, I love it. I, I listen to it, uh, you know, every now and then just to kind of see how far I've come or lack thereof. And, um, totally. and I never, I always kind of go, wow, man, I wish I could do something like that again. But that was such a moment in time that could only exist in that time. So, Well, you, you know, I think the thing that was amazing, too, about that is just, just following the arc of your career is you now have that chapter in your history. You know, yeah, right. I mean, like they're sort of the, the major label era cut chemist solo right. album. Totally. You know I mean? Yeah. He did the group thing, which was successful, obviously. Then he did the, the, the solo thing, which is almost kind of mandatory at that point. It's kind of what would the next logical step be for the guy that left that group? You know what I mean? Right. And, and then obviously, you know, what, 10 years later, then it's full circle again. And the, the, the group that once... As, as I understand it, the group that, you, you know, had a very contentious relationship with each other for a while. Now they they get back together, you know, in, in the, the aughts or whatever that yeah, was. 20, you know, 2014. 2014. One of those, yeah. And it's fucking bigger than ever. Like, you know what I mean? Like doing and, that, that second stage at Coachella, um, I don't know how many motherfuckers were out there, but it was like 70,000. Think about that. Think I mean, about that. dude, I, come on, man. I mean, I, that is such an amazing testament to the impact that you guys had on people's lives, you know, and it's such an amazing testament to the, the staying power that, that, that you guys and the music has, you know, like those songs will always be important you know, for those people and, and for, for other people that come along, you know, that catalog, there's so many classic songs. And then kind of all the things that you guys did individually, that you and Tuna did individually and Newmark did individually. And obviously Soup just, I think Soup, didn't Soup put out an album like last year or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, so uh, guys, yeah. The, the, the efforts and the strides that you guys made individually, they, 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 they carried it in a way. You know, and so when you came back together, I just remember like, you know, talking to Tuna about this and I'm going to talk to him about this more, but just watching that come, it, it, it kind of, I feel like it gave 
the J5 guys a new lease on life in a way, individually as well, you know, if if they took advantage of it, you know what I mean? In like, like it seems like you guys did, you know, but that was so impressive to me and so special and so important to be able to, to see that a good record, a good career, strong commitment to, to artistry, people don't forget that. And that never goes away. You know what I mean? It's true. You know, I really love, um Ava's juxtaposition of Jurassic Five and Fellowship I thought it was it was really poignant because one was like we were really good at branding and and consistency a lot of mainstream stints are about that long you know like as far as like how many albums how many years did the Beatles like you know and how many years did this group how many years it's always kind of like a seven-year bracket of time to where it was like really cracking you know and then everything on either side of it is either like you know, whatever it is. But um, so you take J5, it's like 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001. So 95 to 2002, seven years. That was the span of our, our kind of proper time together from unified all the way to power numbers. Boom, that was it. That was, and that was strong. Like we hit the pavement hard. Yeah. It was, I got pneumonia twice. You know what I mean? It was just like Fuck three yeah. kids, three gigs in a fucking day, like right. on opposite sides of the country kind of mm-hmm. shit. You know what I mean? We, we worked hard and it yeah. takes that hard work to, to get to that point where you're at Coachella on the second state and 75,000 people are like, this means something to me. 20 years later, 20 years later, or whatever it was, you know, 15 years later, you know, or right. I mean, we were, we, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I didn't talk to the guys about it, but I'm pretty sure we were like, I didn't expect that. Yeah. I was like, oh, cool. We're going to do Coachella. N- neat. Awesome. And, uh, but when I looked at that crowd and, and the second week, or was it, yeah, was it the second week? Cause they do it for two weeks. It was even bigger, even bigger crowd. Uh, and, and I went and saw um, Wu-Tang and, uh, you know, they were on the same stage and I was with their orchestra and I was just like, I think we kind of had as big a crowd, maybe, maybe a little more. You know, I was like, that's fucking bananas to me. Yeah. And, um, I mean, shit, I, I, I was, I was so, I was so fucking hyped, dude. You don't even know. Well, I bought a suit for it. Then you know it's awesome. I was like you with the Tom Wally interview. I fucking ironed my jeans. I, I got some Angus Young cutoffs. Like I had them tailor made. Like these expensive ass, like $500 jeans. And then I was like, fuck it, I'm going to take them to a professional place and have them cut into shorts. <laughs> and they're fucking come out like Angus motherfucking young, you know? Oh, my God. You had some jorts, mate? Yeah, some jorts. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, you, you know, I mean, I think, again, it's just a t- testament to, I think, your role in all that, obviously, is, is a testament to, I think, your ability, like you said, to know when to step in and when to lay out. You know, and I think I I don't think anybody does that better that I know of does that better than you do. You know what I mean? In terms of knowing when to fill in the blanks and insert yourself, you know, and I think that um, it's Charlie. Oh, shit. We're being we're being invaded by a fish. Ah, (laughs) Wait, can you can you go away right now, Charlie? We're just talking. shit. No, I'm just kidding. Is he there? Is Tuna there? Well, he's muted, so. Oh, okay. Okay, we're not talking shit, 
Charlie, you can come back. I don't know, or whatever. There, uh, he, is. there he is. Oh, shit. Tuna's here. Give me yes. one second. Let me just turn my audio up. Are we supposed to got going on back there? His painting studio. Oh, shit. Look at that. You know, we went over our time, but let's overlap. This is cool, yeah, man. Cool. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. How you doing, man? Yeah, there you go. What's up, fellas? This is an amazing, this is an amazing special event for me because uh, two of my favorite people, and I feel like two of my best friends in the game, I have on the same Zoom screen at once. Uh, two guys that I've known for 25 years plus. I've toured with. Yeah. I've done songs with. I've been in the studio. I've been in different countries with. I've been in different situations with. Cut Chemist and Charlie Tuna from Jurassic 5 and Oslo Miley. I love you guys, man. It's great to see both of you, man. We love you, know? you man. We love you too, man. I think the original plan was to have you guys together. And then for technical reasons, we wanted to split the interviews up. But now we have this overlap. So, you know, maybe there's some things that we can talk about. Because obviously I'm talking to Cut and, and you, how could your name not come up a million times? You know what I mean? So maybe we can talk about a few things that, that um, from, from your collective history that, that I know. There's a lot of things. I mean, I know you guys, but there's a lot of shit that I just don't know. And it'd be kind of interesting, I think, to hear your individual perspectives on the on the same events, you know. Um, yeah. Like, so so. Cut told me that both of you went to Marshall. No, no, no. I he went to Marshall. I I no. went I, I went, went to, to Mid City um, in at another school. Oh, uh, okay. So okay. So so, what was your impression of Cut when you first met him? You know, like what would like? Do you remember that yeah. moment? Yeah, when I first met Cut, we were in uh, Silver Lake Park, right? Silver Lake is uh, East Hollywood, so to speak, right? Okay. And uh, I, my my um my family moved to Silver Lake from Chicago. That was the first place we lived. We lived there most of the time. We lived in California. Okay. I uh, went to high school the whole time there. Met a bunch of dudes who, you know, six degrees of separation, we, we kind of knew, you know what I'm saying? But we didn't know each other. Now, I knew Mark Seven, high school, because he went to Marshall with Right. Um, uh, I knew this dude named DJ Cass, right? Cassidy was his name, right? Cass was like, you know, he was always walking the line of being like a gangbanger or whatever, but he was a, he was a, a, a hell of a B-boy DJ. He was a hell of a DJ, right? And right. he knew Cut. Um, I knew this dude named Marv Ski, and he knew Cut. But all this, I, you know, once again, I didn't know him. So we, we, we had a uh, Silver Lake Park and, uh, from what I understand, because I didn't hear the conversation, but I just I was I, I became part of the conversation. I was I didn't hear the conversation though, but I heard Cut told me that Kaz Kaz told him, like, you see that dude over there with the with the golden child hat? I used to rock the little golden child beanie and the, and all his leather and shit, you know what I'm saying? She don't see the dude with the golden child hat on. And the mushroom said, hat? Yeah, man. Mine was big though. See, and and my and I had my way before anybody started wearing it was crazy. I came out. Kelly, I started wearing. I was like, nobody got these. That's a shot. Okay, so you had the mushroom hat. Yeah. Oh, I thought you said Cut had the mushroom. No, hat. no. Come on, you know the golden child with that leather golden child beanie. That that. that yes. Uh, the, with the little lip. A little lip going around. Yeah. Okay. But, but Charlie also had the coat, like, and you know, a golden child. I don't think maybe it came out, but I was. I, I attribute it more to Grandmaster Kaz and Wild Style. I was yeah, like, it was. Like, it was old school, like. You know, yeah, I was I like, was like, to be like fucking Grandmaster Kaz over there. 
Wow. But okay. Had, what's the name of that James Brown song? Cut. I always forget. Don't tell it. It's the one that they use for poetry. Yeah, yeah. So he was like, if you play this song, don't tell it, man. Then that dude will come over here and come talk to you because you know, <laughs> that song in Chicago. And, you know, I'm on the other side of the of the gym. Yeah. Cassidy and uh and, and cut. They spend it. It's a you know, it's a, it's a park jam. Right. And, and, and you know, kids and all that shit. We was all tripping because it was going on in the in the in the in the, in the uh in the neighborhood in the in the park. Little, you know, the little park house. And so we, you know, we up in there. We like, what's up? Me and my homie uh, uh, Tyrone and Daryl and everybody. So once he started playing that, first thing I did was walk over to the DJ and was like, what's up? Yo, that's my joint. I used to skate to that in Chicago. That was the first thing I said, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, Cassidy introduced me and cut. But he was he was maestro. He was DJ maestro at that time. Oh, I see. I wasn't telling that part of the story. Your, right. your DJ name was DJ maestro? Yeah. Maestro. Yeah. But it wasn't just like a DJ. He was a he was a graffiti artist too. So it was like he tagged okay. Mike. So you know we talked blah 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 this and that third. What was I your what was your rap name at the time? What was your rap name at the time? Who me? Yeah, Tuna. I I've been Tuna since I was five years old. You were, but I mean I didn't have no I didn't have no like serious. I wasn't serious until me and Cut started actually recording demos. And I was trying to think of like elaborate colorful names professor charles and all these things <laughs> no nah, but, nah, but the bomb squad or a pe really blew that wide open because it was like the assault technician terminator x the professor of information professor griff or whatever minister right. of information you know in that era everybody had a version of like i i know when 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 i was coming up everybody wanted to have like a ll cool j style name with like a couple initials at the top right and then, like, like Gab, Gab's rap, rap name, one of his rap names was Cool TJ, right? Because he's That's so coima. Right? What's the and then, TJ? Like, my, my rap name, my, one of my first rap names was Breezy Breezy T. Oh, my God. You guys you are know. so California with that. Totally. Anyway, continue. <laughs> so, but yeah, okay. so at that time, it was, you know, Cut Chemist, it wasn't my DJ name. It was my, like, kind of title it was, I was the Cut Chemist DJ Momentum. Yeah, yeah, but when I, when it, wasn't it a thing, wasn't it when like Daylight came and we was talking about that? Man, that's what I was thinking of. The PA thing, when it, or was it before? No, nah, PE was the, was the inspiration for sure. Okay, yeah, so, you know, he had this whole long name and this and that, but we weren't really tripping on that. It was like, I don't know what happened, what happened to, to make me and Cassie. We walked to your house from Silver Lake. You remember that? Yeah, wow. in the summer. Rolling. We strolled, and I had a can. We bought a 40 ounce. We was drinking and, and tagging everything until we got to Cut's crib. We walked him home, and then me and Cassidy walked back. You know what I'm saying? Tag the same. It was crazy. You know what I'm saying? It was the days where we ain't had, you know, maybe we didn't have no bus fare that day. So let's just walk. Cut live on Western. That's like about four miles from here. Let's do it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that's we crazy. was on that. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of like the first time we met, for sure. And you, and you, and so how, like, a, a, a lot, I mean, I know this about you, but a lot of people might not say, but you grew up in, you were, you were born and grew up in Chicago. Yeah, for the most part, till I was like 15 and I moved to California. And I was, I was like running from like a bunch of little, I was, I got an older cousin who actually lives in Oakland. Okay. <laughs> San Fran, man. But I had an older cousin who was like really into the underworld and the gangs and the drugs and this and that third. And I was like, He's four years older than me. I was trying to follow behind him in this and that third, and I was getting in trouble with him left and right. My grandmama wasn't having it. She was, okay, I can't control that boy, but I control you. Mm. you know what I'm saying? Your auntie is moving to California, and uh, you can stay here with your mama, 
but your sister and your brothers is going to California because they're younger than you, and I don't want them to be up in this. Chicago is crazy, you know. Okay. So, so she was, was like, looking out for you. Yeah, she was, but yeah. I, ain't, I ain't think I ain't think like that at first. My kids think they know their thing. I, all my friends, all my my whole life, hip hop was there. Like that's what I, my whole graffiti team. I was a graph writer. I was like a beast with that, and I was just but everything. All my homies were right there, so I had to leave them and right. come to California to make new homes. I, I had already came to Cali to visit uh, two years prior, just on some summertime stuff, and I liked it, but. I didn't really have a lot of fun. And I met a dude who would later on become a rap dude because he, he lived right around the corner from me. He was the only dude that I had met that whole summer. And we started hanging out. And that was uh, Son Dewey. Right. Yeah, because Cub was saying that, that the original um, Unity Committee was was um, Son Doobie, you, and Mark Seven, and, and, and Cut. And Marv. And Marv, that's so crazy. So, so you came. So you came to Marshall. You were a sophomore in in high school or a freshman. Yeah, well, Marshall started tenth grade. So yeah, I started at tenth grade. Okay. Wow, that's amazing. But I was at Bancroft when I got to LA. I was at Bancroft for a year, basically. That's a, a middle school. Okay. So I had you know in Chicago, you graduated from eighth grade to ninth grade, and then you know ninth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade, twelfth grade was the was the high school year. But when I came here. It was tenth grade, eleventh grade, twelfth grade. So I had to graduate twice. It was weird. But, and so. then, and then, and then, who went to Bancroft with you? That's that's a nice. Oh man, <laughs> everybody went to Bancroft with me. So Sun Doobie was there again. I seen him, right? Volume Ten was there. Uh, DJ Lethal was there. That dude Lamar, who was in uh, what's that movie? Rapid. Who was doing? Who was doing the windmills? He was holding yeah. on to the basketball doing windmills. I, I went to I went to elementary school with him. Really? Yeah, he was there. Man, there was so many different people. When I supposedly when I two years before I got there, Janet Jackson was there, you know. So it's just like a lot of people went to that school. You know, it's crazy, man. Like that that's what when when I talk to people I know that have grown up in LA, that's the norm. Yeah. You know, like you went to high school with this celebrity or this celebrity's son or daughter, you know what I'm saying? Or, oh yeah, I know them from blah, 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 blah. You know, it's so crazy. like growing up from gr growing up in the base, like, oh yeah, you know, I, um uh nothing. <laughs> y'all got that y'all got that i went to school with uh with an angela davis little niece or something like that y'all got that it's always somebody in the movement you always yeah. went to school with somebody in the movement you know what i mean but it, you it, get it, the movement we get the movie right yeah. there you go there yeah. you go and and so when did y'all like and when did you start rapping though too and they're like i, I know it's been a while well, I mean, I, my first graffiti piece I ever did, like with a can, was in 1981, right? Wow. Um, it, was, wow. it was toys, but I did it. I was like so proud of myself. Around that same time, 82, maybe, I got embarrassed by, actually, it was, it was 83. It was 83. I got embarrassed by this dude named um, Eric Gardner and this dude named Dale. Because the rap thing, you know, Chicago was house music. Yeah. The rap thing wasn't big, and if you was breakdancing and rapping, you was kind of looked at as some little, like, novelty, whatever the fuck, right? But uh, there was a couple dudes in my neighborhood who could freestyle, but they was, like, joke freestyle, like, bagging on, you know, like, look at your shirt, look at, look at you know, that kind of shit, you know? And so, <laughs> totally, yeah. yeah. You, know how to, you know how that go. So yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. have this crush on this girl, like, 83, I was 13. Yeah, and I had this crush on this girl, man, and I was just like, her name was Tasha, and I was just like, 
enamored, but I, I was scared to talk to him, man. You know, I talked to him. I was just, I was scared. And all the homies, everybody that I, I hung out with because I was so bit, so tall, was older than me. So they was all clowning. Ah, you scared of girls, blah, blah, blah. blah, blah. So one summer night, Eric Gardner, Dale, they under my building. We had this viaduct where you could just walk under the building to the other side. Everybody used to hang out under there, drink, smoke weed, crack jokes, whole shit. They all up under the building. I come outside. I see everybody in the building. I'm like, oh, shit, what's going on? They, and they, they down there rapping, mm -hmm. right? But they also know that I'm scared of Tasha. Tasha and her sister standing right there. And I'm just like, damn. You know? So they take it upon themselves to turn the attention to me. Boom. They start freestyling about me, clowning me about Tasha. Dude, my feelings was hurt. I was like, I was shook. Like, shook. I was like, you know, borderline want to cry, ran. Ran upstairs. But I was angry, man. So I grabbed a notebook, uh, uh, notebook paper, and I just started jotting down shit I, I wish I could have said to them. Next thing you know, it was two pages. It was both pages was full. And I said, that's your, So it was fueled by anger. Fueled by anger. That's what that's what I'm talking about on, on, on Galactic. When I say adolescent, my first love name was Tasha, all that shit. That's wow. all real. So I memorized that rap. Week or so later, they was doing the same shit downstairs. I ran downstairs. I was like, yeah. And I threw myself in the middle of it. Yeah. Like, come on, talk about me. Because I got something for y'all. And they, they they did it. And I started rattling off them rhymes and getting the, oh, oh, oh. And that was it. You know, maybe we can just kind of talk about some of the, the, the like I said, I mean, some of the, 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 the common history and things that you guys have. And then, you know, cut can go. So, we, I, so uh, otherwise, you're going to be here for hours. Um, you know what I mean? Well, I'll say this is, is before I met Charlie, uh, I heard about him. Yeah. He was a graffiti artist. Uh, I, cause I used to dabble in it a little bit and there's a place called Belmont tunnel, which was a very famous yard out here in LA. And, um, there, there, you know, I had a bunch of graffiti artists. Uh, David Arquette was actually a graffiti artist in this group called KGB kids. Gone Who was this? Who was this? David Arquette. Okay. And, uh, of the Arquettes. Of the Arquette, yeah. yeah. And so um, I remember, I think it was Skept or one of those kids, they were like, yo, there's like, people go over pieces, right? But, but they were like, there's this one piece that no one will go over because it's so dope. And it's of a unicorn head. And it's by this guy named Chicago 1000. And I was like, wow, really? It's so good that no one will go over it? That's deep. Like everybody goes over everybody at Belmont. So I heard about this dude, Chicago 1000. And when I met Charlie, I don't think I knew that was him for a long time, actually. So, yeah, his, his reputation preceded him in the, in, the, in the graffiti world for so me. So Tuna was Chicago 1000. Yeah, I, I, that was my little, that was my little, my little Zorro name. I, I didn't want nobody to know. I was like, all right, well, I'm in California, and I, and I didn't want to be in Cali. So I, I said, you know what? A lot of dudes, I was studying the, the graffiti styles, and I was seeing that a lot of the dudes, was taking their style straight from Subway. And it was like a few dudes that was like, you know, maybe five or six dudes that really had their own style out here. You know right. And uh, it's a dude named Soon that still to this day is probably one of the sickest. Yeah, Soon, Soon is just one of the sickest, for sure. He's one of the sickest. And, and he's, he's still going. Yeah. He's still he, doing yeah, it. Yeah, he's still going. My homeboy still be talking to him. Wow. He's doing it. But, uh, yeah, so I, I, I was like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do... Uh, because everybody was all about their letters. So I'm going to do a character. But I'm going to do a character, and I'm not going to use no outlines. I'm not going to, like, outline it with black and 
this and the third. I'm gonna try, try to you you know use the the concept that there are no lines. You know what I mean? So I'm like, I'm just, I just used all colors and I stacked everything on top. Nobody was really doing that at the time. And I think that's why I got so much love. I didn't expect it, man. I'm telling you, a piece lasts four days, five days max out there. You know, the doper ones will last two weeks, but mine lasted about a year, which I yeah. tripped on. Damn, so you, I, got a lot, I got a reputation for that. So you guys were not only connected by music, you were connected by graffiti. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Right. That's In fact, I think the first person I met at the Silver Lake uh, Recreation was uh, his writing partner, Jack Frost, before yeah. I was, met was him. Was it me and Jack that was at the party when we first yeah, met you? Yeah, was it? Definitely, <laughs> definitely. Because I was like, who's that fool that looks like Lee? Yeah, yeah, it was Jack. Like, yeah, you look like Kaz, and he looked like Lee. Like, my mind was blown. Like, I stepped into Wild Style in <laughs> 1987. It was crazy. And, and what year was this? 87. Yeah, 87. So you guys have known each other for 33 years. Mm-hmm. Or longer. Uh, I, I can't do the math right now, but, yeah. Okay. Long, long damn time. Right, right. 2020. Okay. So, because, I mean, because that's, you know, if you think about that, I mean, that's really special. I mean, you guys have been friends not only for 33 years, but you guys have been working together for 33 years. I mean, it, it just has, it's not just like, oh, we're just homies, you know? I mean, it it goes well beyond just uh, we're friends. It's like you guys still have a working relationship, you know? With Probably stronger than ever, more right now. Yeah. You know, and and obviously it's gone through several permutations. You know what I mean? And like I I just remember even when Jurassic Five had broken up for the first time. Like even when I would talk to Cut or you separately, and your names would come up. You know, both of you guys would be like, like if I was talking to Cut about and 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 your name come up came up, Cut would be like, oh yeah, that's my man. You know, or if I was talking to you about Cut, you'd be like. That's my man. You know what I mean? So, like, I think that that's really special that you, that the two of you have this really strong bond that's lasted decades. And multiple groups. I mean, you've been in three different, am I, am I right? Three different groups together from Unity Committee, Ozo Motley, Jurassic yeah. Five. I never thought about it like that, but yeah, three different groups. Yeah. That's well, you know, when, you, when you know a rapper like Charlie, you just kind of, he's your ringer. It's like bringing the ringer, you know, when Ozo, Ozo was together for about a year before Charlie came in. And I, I was like, when they wanted to bring in a rapper, I was like, well, come on, there's only one rapper, it's Charlie. We're gonna use him or not? Not like, let's find one, we know one. Cause Will Dog and, and Charlie knew each other before any of that also. Because of the dude he said that looked like Lee, which is, uh, uh, Jack Frost. Jack Frost is Will Dog's big brother, so that's kind of how the whole thing went around. You know? Well, what, so what do you, what do you attribute that to? Because I mean, that's pretty rare, you know, to have that kind of a to have for a relationship have that kind of depth. You know what I mean? Like, what what do you attribute that to? Well, I think for for one, it's the fact that we have two things in common: music and art. Okay. So if one of us kind of like can't fuck with the other on the concept of music, we mm. can still speak a language. Um, that bonds us mm. through another medium and, mm. and vice versa. You know, if that one's like, oh, you know, we can't talk about art right now, but hey, but we're still, you know, we got music. And so, you know, whether we record or we just talk about the things we like or Tuna's the first person I called after the premiere battle. You know, I was just like, I want to call Tuna and talk about this shit because it was incredible. I want to share that enthusiasm with my dude. You know, it, it's, it's that and then just also, also the history. 
you know, tuna's been around through every transition in my life. So at a certain point, it's like, it's just goes beyond what even bonds you. It's just the history you have together, you know, or what bonds you. We got, we got a lot of things in common as well as just, I think the approach to what we do, you know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a love there that's, that go beyond monetary, uh, monetary thing and all that. You know what I mean? And I think the, the, the dudes who stick with this to the fullest have that kind of love to it. Even if, you know, they about they, they paper to the max, whatever. But I'm just saying, like, it's a it's a it's a underlying love there that if we wasn't getting paid for this, this me and Cut probably still be on the phone like, hey, got this rap. You gotta be, you know what I mean? So that's important, man. You know, and so like you know, obviously a lot of this this conversation for me it comes from the standpoint of a fan, you know, because I've seen the arc of both of your careers as a fan, you know what I mean? And I, I've just been following both of you guys, you know, for as long as you've been around, I feel like, you know, and you've been through some big changes together and individually, you know, like, like probably one, one of the most influential underground hip hop groups all fucking time, you know, in terms of, you know, and, and I don't think people quite, maybe when people think of, and I say underground just because, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of a feel thing when you talk about underground, you know, when you talk about whatever your criteria are, I don't know. But I mean, for, for me, it's like if you didn't have platinum record after platinum record after platinum record and you weren't being played on the radio, then you were an underground group as far as I was concerned. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't take away from anybody's ability or the, the quality of the music. But, you know, right. I don't think people give Jurassic 5 necessarily the credit for changing the way that we perceived hip-hop, you know what I mean? That, that, that we as fans perceived hip-hop, you know what I mean? And... I mean, obviously you guys were in it. So, so, you know, what, what did that feel like at that time when you guys were touring the world and with in-ear monitors, we were so jealous. We were like, these motherfuckers got in-ear monitors. Where do they get the, what are, what are those? You know what I mean? And I'm just like, they got road managers. Like that's how we used to be. And, and so what was that, what was that feeling like? Like what were the, co the conversations internally that you guys were having well, we weren't we weren't having any internal conversations. That's that's kind of the trade off, I think, is when it becomes so machine oriented and like you you have your road manager, you have your caterer, and you have all these like things in place that are paid for by God knows where. I don't know, you know, and that's the thing is like you don't see where the money is coming out of, you don't know where it's coming in, but it's there, and and so things get kind of weird and and abstract to where it's like. We're a part of this machine that is moving and it's beyond our control as individuals. <laughs> and, and that's a very scary thing. And it, and it throws everybody as individuals off balance to the, to the point where you may not feel like that you personally have an impact on the situation. That's when things start to really generate in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I guess what I'm saying is, when the first album came out on Interscope and I went to Newmark's house, right? Uh -huh. And Newmark was like, look up, right? At the, at the time. Uh, fucking billboard, yeah. Newmark was like, look up. 
And I'm like, what, what, what do you mean, man? What is this bullshit? What look up? You know, yeah, he's going to pull one of these numbers on you. Right, yeah. And you know, he said, no, look up. That's oh, yeah, that's right. That's where Newmark stayed in Hollywood. And it was right above his house, I remember. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> and, you know, that was him. Well, he, but, 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 but hold on. You, you got to experience this moment with me for a moment. I look up. That's a Jurassic Park billboard above his house, right? And at that moment, I was like, this is no longer my five friends anymore. This is a real <laughs> fucking rap group. You know what I mean? With the deal. And it, it was off to the races. It was a different feeling. I mean, suddenly I felt like, wow, there's a whole world of possibility out there. You know what I mean? And uh, if you think about it, out of that whole movement, you know, and, and I'm not saying that obviously we're not relevant anymore by any means, but that was a moment, you know what I mean? And out of that whole movement of maybe 20 or 30 groups, there were three maybe that had major label deals that came from our kind of pool of peers, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Jurassic five was the biggest one, you know, probably. So how were you guys able to process? I mean, you know, Tuna, how were you guys able to process that? Like, what was going through your minds at that time? To be honest, man, I, it, you know how you'd be like, like, if you get in a pool, right, and you submerge yeah. your whole self in a pool, there's water all around you. So after, after a certain point, you ain't, you ain't looking at every square inch of it all. You just kind of like pushing forward. That's how I was. I was like, okay, we got this record deal. Uh, we got these opportunities. We on a major label. People are actually liking our stuff. You know, it was around that time where it was like, after you finish making your album and you like proud of your album, you're like, okay, this one gonna blow up. This one gonna blow up. Yeah. And then it don't do what you think it's gonna do. And then the next one, you're like, this gonna blow up. You know, so like I, I didn't really, really trip on us being in that position until like we got to like feedback. Once we got the feedback, I was really like looking around like, yo, this is a real, like we got a machine going on. You know, Cut had left. And it was a bunch of just decisions that needed to be made. And that wasn't how we started. We was like, let's make some songs. You know what I mean? But all these super, like, precise decisions that we needed to make was, like, tripping me out. And I was like, okay, this is where it starts to get weird. And then, you know, in every team, you're going to always have a group of people that like that dude or that like that dude, or just like those two dudes, or this and the third, and you never really get a chance if you're inside that group and, and watching the next man and being mad about the fact that that dude get more love than you or this dude get more love than you, this and the third. You never have a chance to, you know, stop and smell of roses. You're constantly always trying to fight off little, you know, uh, just little bull that just comes in your way, all this little... This little Ray Ray stuff just coming in your way. I'm, for yeah. me, it was like, I was just like, okay, I just got to keep my head above water, you know? Right. Literally. right. Like, I got to just breathe and, and, and continue to be able to look around and create to the best of my ability or, you know, my part of this thing is going to sink, you know what I mean? And, and then eventually the rest of it is going to sink. And then you had people, you know, because of that, trying to fight, for positioning and this and the third when we already had our positions we already had what we was going to do yeah uh, and, and, and what could be accomplished if you got a if you got a team like i'm watching the last dance you got a team 
You know, you everybody know they roll. Gee, everybody know they roll. Shouldn't be no problem. Right. Shouldn't right. be no problem. But it becomes one. Ego, pride, you know, sprinkle a little bit of jealousy in there, uh, money from, you know, four of us didn't have, ain't had nothing. Like, it was, was, was like broke from junk. You know what I mean? So you get all of this stuff when you ain't had it. We in our 20s. It's just so, more about maintaining it than, than, than trying to say, okay, yeah, we on the top. And this and the third, like I was reading Rakim's book, and Rakim was like, you know, when I was on the top, I knew I was on the top. And anything that I wrote, I had to write from the perspective of being on the top. And anybody who wrote anything else around me was coming after my spot. Like, I wasn't thinking like that at all. I just wanted to make some good music. You know what I mean? Well, that, that's interesting that you say that, man, because I think every group goes through that. No matter how big, no matter how many people are in the group, no matter how successful that group becomes. I mean, just managing the personalities and the expectations and the egos and all. I mean, even, even within quantum, like, you know, like you said, you had certain people that there were certain fans that were like in the Latirics camp. There were certain fans that were like, who's a better rapper, Gab Latif or LB, you know what I mean? Who's a better producer, you know, Shadow XL or LB, you know? And if you're not stable or if you, and if you're not really secure, which most of us are not in our twenties, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. That, that can be really difficult, you know, and a lot of groups don't survive that. I know that certainly played a part with us for sure, you know, but we weren't bound to each other. Like we could go make our own records. It wasn't necessarily the same as a Jurassic Five, you know what I mean? So how did you guys manage that, you know, in terms of like sort of these, these internal difficulties, you know? It was, it was tough. I, I think we dealt with it by not dealing with it. I think one of the things that is difficult within a group is when some individual is doing outside branding work and they become more known than other people in the band because of that. So, you know, I was involved in so many things. I was doing things with Shadow. I was doing things on my own. I was doing things with Ozo and J5. Yeah. So naturally, people would know me, you know, more than another member in the group. And so, you know, sometimes that's a problem for people. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's a problem for me. You know, like, how do I choose? You know, you know, it's like, but, you know, I knew I always wanted. J5 was like my first priority always. And then everything else was a side dish. But what people didn't understand was, and I can understand what they were like, oh, your energy isn't fully with us. You should just be with us. And, you know, I would get that from every group. Ozo did the same thing and, you know, J5 and whatever. Um, and even I would do it with myself. Like, yeah, maybe Cut Chemist should be your priority and, like, you should dip and do a James LaBelle deal with Moaz. No, don't do that. You know, you have kind of both people on your shoulder. When you're out there doing it, what people don't realize is that I'm bringing the J5 brand into that other world. And I'm trying to spread the word of J5. You know what I'm saying? So well, it's like anytime I would do something with Shadow, you hear a J5 sample in there that was sampled from the 45 or with Oza Motley, let's do a rendition of Unified and call it Cut Kim Sweet, you know, and there's always kind of like cross-branding. Yeah. Well, I mean, because you guys both had that issue, because you guys were both part of sometimes the same other group, you know what I mean? But but you you both had that issue, because Tuna, you were doing Oza Motley also. You know? Right, yeah, so Charlie and I, you know, have similar problems. Like when we got back together in, was it 2013 or 14, Charlie? I can't remember. 
anyway, anyway, it doesn't matter. People were establishing themselves as solo artists, so there was a, a lot more of an equal playing field as far as like what people felt they were bringing to the table. You know, it wasn't like, you know, like I said, you, it's hard to know your self-worth when you're a part of this machine and it, and it takes everybody to make it move, but you don't see that. And so all you see is other people making their other machine move. But now that people had a taste for that, when we got back together, there was a lot more like understanding, I felt like. Like everybody grew up yeah. and it was, it was easier to understand everybody because they had now gone through that whole individual individuality as an artist themselves. You, you know, group, groups are difficult no matter what. Groups are difficult. It requires a lot of give and take. It requires a lot of communication. You know what I mean? It requires a lot of like, you have to subdue. And, and communication skills that you don't develop. Um, nobody does really. Like you have to cut your teeth on ill communication, you know, pun intended. But, you yeah. know, before you can really understand what the problem is, like you don't, it's not like you come out of like your teens going like, okay, and this is how I'm going to communicate with my group that isn't successful yet. And when money starts rolling, you know, and everybody can kind of get there. You know, it doesn't happen like that. You've kind of got to go through that part of being a, in a group that is awkward and you fight and then you have understanding because out of arguments comes understanding. Yeah. Well, the, the, the other thing also, man, is when you're in your early 20s, people don't fucking realize you're just physiologically, your brain is not completely developed. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You, you know, if you're 21, 22, 23, and you're in this group with seven other people or six other people in your case, you know what I mean? Five other people say, like, there's shit that you have to manage that I don't think I would have been able to do. Just just the level that I was at as a human being. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't even know if physiologically I would have been able to manage that situation. You know, because you're so emotional and shit at that point in your life, and you haven't had all these life experiences where it's like, you can't think about it like, oh, well, if so-and-so was out there making a name for himself in that context, this will only benefit me. Like, you don't have that kind of wisdom. You don't have that kind of processing, that kind of CPU, you know what I mean? That kind of, your beach ball is still spinning and shit at that age when shit, weird shit starts to happen. I mean, would you agree with that, Tune? I mean, is that, do you feel like there was some of that going on? Yeah, definitely, man. We, you know, like I said, we was young. Everybody was young. You know, right. if you didn't have nothing, and all of a sudden you got a little something. Like, one of my, growing up, okay, I used to, I used to hang out with, with a bunch of dudes who, like, made a little bit of money on the street, this and that third. And you felt like they had paper, because they could, like, if they wanted to, they can go buy them some McDonald's. Or, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I ain't got to go ask my mama for no change to go play no video games. You see what I'm saying? Like, that kind of thing. So my mindset was, I just want to be able to, be self-sustaining, self-efficiency. I just want to be able to just, if I want to go buy me some food, if I want to go buy me some weed, if I want to go, you know what I'm saying, give me a hotel, you know what I'm saying, be, be all up on the broad, whatever, I'd be able to do it myself. I, I wasn't really like, it, it wasn't like a, a pursuit of currency on some, I'm trying to get rich. I never really right. thought about it like that. You know what I mean? that's Maybe that's to my detriment. I don't know. But I well, do feel like I had this romantic view of us. And, and, you know, in, in your 20s, you're not, able, in my opinion, you're not able to process the fact that nobody sees the world exactly like you do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, me and Cut have, have had arguments because I'm like, man, why you, why you doing, why you producing songs for volume 10? You know he ain't going to do nothing, but you need to be a Cut. Like, man, shut up. Man. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and I, I had no way of processing that as a kid. Right. I'm already sensitive as it is. So, you know something though, like when, when I think of you though, in particular, man, I mean, you're probably one of the hardest working guys that I know. I don't know anybody that spends more time on the road or, you know, and still has manages to like paint, record, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? And, and I've always known you to be that way. Like if, if an opportunity presented itself with those Omotley, you did that. You know what I mean? And if an opportunity presented itself with Jurassic five, then you did that, you know? And, and I remember reading an interview with you one time, I think it was in rat pages, man. It was like, 20 or 30 years ago because I was always really like, man, this dude's got a work ethic. You know what I mean? Like in, in my mind, I was always, man, man, this dude fucking works hard, you know? And I remember reading this, this interview with you a long time ago. Maybe you don't remember it. I think, and, and it was, it was timely too. Cause I think I had just left a gig. I think I just seen y'all somewhere early on and you know, that advanced check came, you know, Tuna was out there in the expedition Pulled up, yo LB, where you going? You know, and then he drives off, and I'm like, he got it, he got an expedition. <laughs> Tuna drives off, but then, like around that time, I remember reading this interview in Rap Pages, and he was like, look, and 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 I think the quote, I don't, you know, I'm going off of memory now, but you know, but I think the quote was like, look, and it kind of it, it gave me a lot of insight into your personality and your work ethic, you know, and I think what you said was. You know, my family didn't even own a car. You know what I mean? And I have this opportunity here, you know, to do what I'm doing. You know, and and suddenly that that's just that lit up everything for me. That became quick. I got such a, a, a insight into your personality at that time, and and like your your drive. You know, and so so it's interesting to hear you say that now. You know, and and I still see that with you. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't know any artist, any genre who spends this much time on the road. You know, it's like baffling to me, you know, and like I, I, it's it, it just sort of speaks to your work ethic. You know what I mean? It's I don't know how you do it. man. I mean, I think my, I know my how work ethic just comes from this shit right here, man. Just painting, man. I mean, you know, 10,000 hours is what I, I was told when I was a kid. You got to put 10,000 hours. In. I'm like, OK, cool. That means with everything. Right. Any and everything you do. So I don't know. I just it, the the creativity drives me, man. And then it, it's just really that I like to I like to create shit. I like the feeling after I finish creating. They're like looking at it, like, whoa, I did that. Wow, that's amazing. Or listening to it like, yo, that came out dope. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just one of those things for me. And I think I would be doing it even if it had no you know monetary value attached to it. So I don't know. Yeah, it's right. I never. I, I grew up with nothing. And I and I and to be able to use my talents to put my son through school and buy a house and just sustain myself. I don't have to have no, you know, nine to five cubby hole job and things like that. Right. I'm, I feel like I'm blessed beyond blessed. And I, and I always like took it like that. You know? 100%. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, that we can say that I, I sometimes I, you know, I, I step back and I'm just like, wow, I can't believe something I love has been able to not just afford me a certain lifestyle and certain things, but just, to be able to really see and understand the world in a much different way, you know? Right. I mean, that to me, I think, has been the number one blessing out of all this, you know? 
So, I mean, and, and, and the, another thing that you guys both, both share in common is that, you know, you, you both were part of this group that had a lot of success, you know, and then the same machine approached both of you guys about doing solo albums. Now, how was that perceived within the group at that time? Do you know, like, how was that, not perceived, how was that received by the group at that time? It wasn't taken well, man, because once again, it's one of those things where it's like, if you in it, yeah. and you hoping that everybody's looking at the shit like you do, and you want everybody to be together and move together, but if that one dude get another uh, opportunity outside of, the, outside of that circle, it's going to yeah. be somebody within the circle that's going to be mad at just what it is. And that's with any situation. I don't care what it is. It could be the music. It could be anything. Somebody yeah. going to be mad. You know what I'm saying? Somebody going to be happy for you. Somebody going to be mad. Yeah, I mean, because I felt like I went through that, you know, because I felt like I saw everybody around me getting signed, you know what I mean, at, at one time. And I was like, what the hell? I mean, they're, they're not any better than, or worse than me, you know what I mean? Or they not – I guess the way that I had to deal with that being in the, in the other side was that it's just like, the fuck am I going to do other? I mean, I just got to keep going. I can sit here and be mad about it or – I just have to have faith that it's going to work out, you know, for me on some level, you know what I mean? And I, I just, for me, it was like, okay, well, I'm not about to just quit. But I, I just wonder because, again, these are the things that affect group dynamics in a certain way, you know? And, and I, I say that to say, how, do, how would one manage that successfully? You know, knowing what you know now, if you're in a, if you're in a group with these people, that you know a certain segment are getting different opportunities a certain segment are pursuing other opportunities knowing what you know now like how would you navigate that or would you do it any differently is there is there is there a solution there for how to sort of be able to continue solution you know? i'm not sure but i if me personally i would have the one thing that i would have done different is not take stuff so personal okay. I, I i'm I've looked to my brother Cut Kimmins, for yeah. real, because he's always had a, a disposition about stuff that, even if he probably felt different in the inside, I looked to him for strength in a lot of ways. I'm like, man, how do Cut do this? Man, I mean, I need to be more like him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know what? Don't even don't even sweat it. Just do you. Just do what you got to do. That's what I. That's what I would have done. I would have just continuously tried to be an asset to the group and not so much worry about how. This dude's action made me feel. What he said made me feel. Why he did that and how that made me feel. If it didn't mess with the structure and the core of the group, I had nothing to worry about. And that was something that I didn't know. I didn't know that. And I feel like I would I would change that about myself. I'd just be like, okay, this is gonna go where it's gonna go, regardless of what we do. You know, we can we can slack off and it'll be like whatever, or we can push hard and it can yeah. go to its full extent. What I am gonna do try my hardest not to put myself in a situation, even though sometimes you don't have no control over the shit. Put yourself in a situation where it's going to cause uh, some kind of upheaval. And if it does, have the wherewithal to be the most diplomatic about it and be the solution to the problem as opposed to offering it. Just being the problem. You know what I'm saying? Come with a solution to it. I, 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 I can honestly say within the Jurassic, it's been times where I'd have just been like so angry about something, I'd just shut down. Word, okay. <laughs> and that wasn't the best thing to do. Yeah, I can honestly say that. You know what I mean? So, 
It's just one of those things. That's what I would have changed. But other than that, the journey itself, I wouldn't have changed yeah. an inkling of any of that because it was fun. It's fun. It's still fun. It's it's created a, a, a pathway, a road for us to continue to drop down. You know, what I mean? yeah. I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. So, you feel the same way, cut. Well, I th yeah, definitely. I, I think that um, the whole, like, what would Cut do or, or how would Cut think, you know, I, you know, I, I look at Charlie the same way, and, and I realize that I look at Josh that way. Like, anywhere, anybody I collaborate with, but really, like, the most profound collaborations I do are with cancers. That's crazy, right? <laughs> Explain that. I, I can't other than, hey, isn't that weird? Because um, Josh is a cancer and so is Charlie. And, you know, when I was working with, um, you know, or not really working, but, you know, uh, friends and just kind of like. Oh, you're talking astrologically. Yeah. I don't know what the oh, fuck you were talking about. Sickness? No. I th no, I thought you meant like somebody with cancer, like they're a motherfucking problem, like they're toxic. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. So uh, okay. I didn't know what you were talking. Okay, all right. And and That's cool. and I and I think for me, what attracts me uh, in the workplace to a cancer is their work ethic. Um, okay. I know yeah. I, there there are a lot of similarities um, mm -hmm. in the way the these people work as artists. What is your sign, Cut? Libra. You're a Libra. Okay. All my best friends are Libras. Hey, Latif. you know. Latif Gab um, is a Libra. Oh, yeah, they both are, right? Oh shit. That makes so much sense. They both are. Yep. My work ethic is a different kind of animal than that of a cancer. Like it's less apparent that I'm working. <laughs> like, it's less apparent that I'm working. Like, like people just kind of assume like, how does Cut even get by? Like yeah. it doesn't seem like he applies himself at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm talking about, man. That's what I'm saying. I look yeah. at Cut. He, he don't. He, he might not look at it like this, but his his nonchalant. Hey, I'm I'm just. It's an effortless thing to me. Is inspiring to me because I know behind the scenes he's working his ass off. So you right. know what I mean. I yeah. like looking at that. I, I want to uh, more adapt that in, into my personality. But but like, but it's also a very like Bruce Lee be like water kind of attitude. Like I'm not gonna sit there and force a situation that doesn't want to happen. Yeah. I'm not saying like I give the universe the wheel 100%. It's a 50-50 relationship just like anything else. You have to listen for up and, and, and notice opportunities, you know, and just kind of like don't force them to exist when they don't want to exist. But at the same time, when they when things are suggested like this, might, well, you, you jump on it and you, you work at it. Like yeah. I'm not the one to sit there and try to like, all right, today I have to do this and it's got to be this way. Mm. And if it isn't, I'm going to be depressed and I'm going to consider today a failure. No, that is not my attitude. My attitude is maybe I won't do anything today. Maybe it'll come to me tomorrow. Maybe it'll come to me in a week. And when it does, it's going to be awesome. And it's going to be the best thing mm. ever. Now you can only do that. So it's not like, Oh, I'm going to wait four years to make an album. Right. right. <laughs> no. I did actually. Well, but, but that, <laughs> but that album was the, the album I wanted to make. Even if I got kicked off Warner Brothers, it would have been worth it because I would rather have that album that I made to say, okay, I did that. And would you have spent that amount of time today working on an album? I, I spent more. I spent more time on die cut than I did audiences listening. Really? Because that you know the other thing is that was an era where people were like. 
I'm going to take two, three years off and I'm going to work on my album. Right. You know what I mean? Wait, you heard era? that a lot. What era? Yeah. The sophomore album era? No. Well, just like in the 90s and the 2000s, people took Oh, yeah, yeah, time. yeah, totally. They took yeah, a now long it's like, Now it's like, hey, I got to come out with another album next week. Right. Uh, like, I, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just internal pressure, but I feel like I have to do at least an album a year now. Yeah, man. Hey, I don't even I feel like say. I have to do albums. Like, I don't even feel like I have to do music. Like, I don't, I don't pressure myself into doing anything. I do it because I want to do it and mm. express myself as an artist because I need to do that express myself as an artist, but I don't feel like I need to choose any way to do that. Like if I want to paint and do that shit for the rest of my life, I want to make ice sculptures. Fuck it. I don't care. I don't owe anybody anything. I just don't put that pressure on myself. And I guess everybody's career is just different because I feel like if I don't do that, things start to fall apart for me. You know what I mean? Because I admire your work ethic too, fam. You, yeah, there's nobody out there that'll do an album a year. And a mixtape. I'm gonna do this mixtape to promote this out, dude. You work. You talking about somebody at work? You and really, work. and really, from like, like what you said, like everybody was getting put on, and you had to put yourself on. Like, you had to pick yourself up and make it happen for you when you, you know, when when you said, like, hey, man, what about me? All right, well, I believe in me, and that's all I need. And look at where that got you. Exactly. And that's like I consider lyrics born kind of the only example around us that that really did it like that huh. that's free so that's interesting well i i think you, you know i didn't feel like i had a choice man i just didn't feel like some I people had. some people might think they have the choice to give up and i know people that have and and you yeah. didn't thank you for saying that i i guess what i'm saying is like if if i wanted this to continue the only choice that i had was to make it continue yeah you know what I mean? Like it was, I mean, it, th Hey, there were some dark fucking moments, man. I, I, you know, and I'll just tell you, you know, and, and this is going to kind of go back to what, what we were saying, but like at one point after I had done 150,000 units independently, you know, and I was on MTV, I had number one songs. I had sold out tours and I looked around at every single one of my peers Jurassic Five, some of the guys in Jurassic Five individually, Dilated, Hyro, Shadow, Funk Dubious, Black Alicious, you know, you name every single person that I can that I had on speed dial that I could call and I considered a friend, every single one of them had a major record label deal. You know, and this was that era. This was that era, okay? So I'm talking about, this was a while ago, you know? Yeah. And I was just like, the fuck's going on here? You know what I mean? Because I know, I knew in my heart of hearts, you know, none of us are any more talented or less talented than the other. You know what I mean? I knew. But at the same time, I was like, you know, I had my thought. I, it, it was a very, it was kind of a difficult thing for me to swallow. You know what I mean? Just because I knew how I felt about myself. You know what I mean? And I knew how I felt about what we were all doing, you know? And I was like, okay, well, this isn't going the way that I wanted it to go. This isn't going the way that maybe I thought that it would go. But this is what I was put on this planet to do. You know what I mean? So what choice do I have but to just continue? You know, and whatever that took, you know, my journey is just, it's just not the same as my other peer, as my peers. You know, for whatever reason, 
You know, we can theorize about that all day long, but for whatever reason, you know, my journey is different. And if I wanted to continue and I want the story to be told, you know, then I have to do what it is that I have to do, you know, in order for that to unfold. That's why when I, I that's why I ask you guys, like, sort of the, 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 the whole group dynamic, I just, I feel like people, you know, we have a lot of problems in, in, in society that we don't necessarily have all the answers to. But I think if you were to really study groups, you know, music groups, sports team, in your case, six guys, you know, that came from vastly different backgrounds, some similar, you know, obviously some overlaps, some similarities, but different parts of the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a way to make it work? What, and if so, what is that roadmap? Because maybe it didn't work for you guys. Um, it, it got you to a certain level, you know, at that time. And then kind of split up and then you came back together again. And then it got to an even larger level, you know, at least on the live front, you know what I mean? At least, you know, doing these concerts. And to me, like I was talking, I was talking to Cut about this before, before you got on. And I mean, it is a testament to this group that I know had historical differences. You know what I mean? I know that there were, because I, I was there, you know what I mean? I know that there were issues internally and maybe those issues never completely went away, but you were able to navigate that somehow in order to come back to get, look on the bright side, you guys were able to navigate that somehow and come back and do these, this um, one of the most amazing reunions success stories that I think I've seen, you know, in, in my lifetime, especially from guys that I know. So what was it about that group dynamic the second time around, you know, that made it work in a way that maybe the first time it was a challenge? It was, it was experience. I think like what cuts it, it was like, we, we all kind of, every one of us kind of was able to at least, put their feelers into the, the solo pool after we broke up the, the first time. You know what I mean? Right. And, and, you know, some of us had more success than others, but all of us had, was able to, to, to experience it a little bit and then to, to determine, you know, where they needed to go outside of the group and what they wanted to do. And, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? I feel like people got a chance to express themselves where maybe they didn't feel like they could when we were like dead in it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so when we got it together, like, I know for me, because it, it, we got back together at a time where my solo career was, like, doing some things. I was like, yeah, this is perfect. It was right after, like, the uh, the uh, Deadliest Catch Tour and all that stuff that we did together. I was like, ooh, I got my thing going. It's going. It's going. Wait, what? The group? What? I always <laughs> wanted it to, 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 to continue, but I was like, I was on some, you know, there's certain toxic relationships here and there. I was like, yeah, man, I don't want to deal with that. But I thought of myself, I said, man, okay, now if I can think outside of myself, later for what I want, what does the, the group need? Like if I can, if I can make a decision to say yes, and that can uh, affect the next dude in the group in a way that's positive, meaning like, you know, like maybe take them out of a poverty condition or, you know what I'm saying? All of a sudden we got this, this big check coming in, now you can go pay off that bill or this and that, whatever it is. You know what I mean? If, if, that, if the decision, if me being selfish to say, man, fuck, I don't want to be around the dudes, will take people under in, in, into an even darker place, I don't want to be a part of that. I wanted, I wanted us all to succeed from jump. And so when it, when it was the second time, I was like, 
let's do this and let's do it big this time. Let's hope we can we can really do it big this time. Yeah. You, you did get a chance to actually do it pretty big, at least on an you know, extent. Huge. One of the most successful reunions I've ever seen. You know what I mean? I just didn't want to be selfish about it. I wanted it, I wanted it all to be, you know, a together thing. Once again, though, I got caught in my people who are seeing what I'm seeing here. Thing, you know what I mean? And, you know, well, nobody's going to see it like how you see it. So I had to, like, within the comeback, I had to dial my whole personality back a yeah. little bit. Okay, I got to make it. would help make it successful. Is everybody kind of, like, respected? You know, it wasn't like anybody really – I didn't feel like anybody really aggressively went in, like, all right, man, I'm going to have – you know, I'm going to steer this shit with my brand and, you know, fucking make it happen for me. You know, it was like, oh, shit, because that could, it presents an opportunity to do that in a major way. Using the J5 reunion to kind of like, all right, this is my chance to like really big up my brand. But it was like, no, 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 no. This is about Jurassic 5. And remember, it it was step by step. First, it was just Coachella. Yep. We didn't, you know, we we didn't like look at this huge mountain and go, fuck, we got to climb that. It was like, let's do Coachella. And then we'll see. Coachella was awesome. Okay, guys, do you want to keep doing that? Because we have potential here to reach a lot of people, make some good coin, everybody wins. And so, okay, sure, what's it looking like? Okay, well, here's the idea. Yes, we're down. And then how about the next year and the next tour? And we did that for three or four years. And, you know, I think that that was important is that we didn't look at it like, all right, we're going to get back together and like really do this. Like for the long haul, it was like, let's just take it slow. Yeah. Let it be. And then it was discussed like, okay, are we going to record new music? Not everybody was into it. So we were like, okay, you know, then we'll just keep it at this. And then, you know, we'll move on. I think that's a really mature perspective. You know what I mean? And that maybe that's what was different about the second yeah, it, time. It, 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 it alleviated the idea of expectation, right. which is really the main problem in, in anything. It's like yeah. no one expecting somebody else to want the same things you want. And that yeah. always gets you into trouble every time. Well, the, 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 the interesting thing also is that, you know, I was talking to Tuna when, when it was all coming together back again. And I think we were on the road or something like that. And, and it was all coming, you, you know, the offers were starting to come in for the J5 reunion gigs and da, 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 da. And I was like, so how are you feeling about this? And you said, one thing you said was, the fans are going to love it. You know what I mean? The fans are going to love it. And that was so cool to me, you know, because it, it, it showed me that, you know, maybe you were anticipating some difficulty, you know, with, with the whole process. But you knew what it would mean to those fans, you know. And I thought that that was such a selfless um, point of view and perspective to take, you know, because at the same time, you know, I think that maybe we had gotten a few quantum um, offers and we were never able really to pull it off. And I never looked at it like shit, the fans would love this. You know what I mean? I never looked at it like that. I was just so caught up in will the personalities be able to mesh? Like I wasn't sort of able to step back and take myself out of it. And I, and I, I probably wasn't the only one. And I think that to me, that speaks to you guys' personality because 
one thing that that I see with you guys is that you know y'all are able to make solo albums. Y'all are able to go out and do your own gigs and your own shows, but when it's necessary, you're very comfortable in group settings. You know, I think you're both. In my estimation, I mean, do do you feel like you're more comfortable in groups, working in groups, or do you feel like you're more comfortable doing your own thing? Like, so I need I need both. I can't exist in one solely or the other. Okay. I need the what I call um, the group dynamic, and then I need my late night jam session. That's totally me. Yeah. And each fails. The other fails if I don't get that other time with the other. So it's a balance, but like I said, I can't just do, because I'm so community based, I would say that I tend to draw myself more towards groups. Right. That group, my, my, my role in that group will fall apart if I don't get my own time. I, I would have said the same thing. Like I, I need, I need it all. Like, you know, even if I haven't made an album one year, I got, I have like an album worth of collabs out there. I just need to be able right. to do as much stuff as I can. I, I need to be able to feed, feed, my soul from from the solo perspective from the group perspective from the visual perspective from all you know i just need to be able to do it if i can't then one of the things will suffer you know or all of them will suffer you know so i'm i'm, I'm with cut on that level yeah for sure i mean and that's probably why charlie and i have such a strong bond and still work together because we understand that about each other that's a good point yeah i mean that 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 seems to me like that's another commonality that's a really it's like a touchstone for your relationship almost you yeah, know, is because you're both very creative and productive in other mediums mm-hmm. and other outlets. I mean, Tuna does art shows, you know, Charlie does art shows and which are, cra- I mean, and the shit that you post online is crazy. And the other thing, you know, is your Instagram. It's not about your rap career. You know, when I, I wouldn't even necessarily, if I didn't know you, I wouldn't even know that you had a rap career. Like, you think look, it's a photographer. And then I see that, and then if it's not that, you know, it's your paintings that you're working on, you know? And occasionally it's something music-related. Right. You know what I'm saying? And, and I think that that, I don't know, it, it just sort of speaks to, you know, this, this creative spirit that I think you both really share, you know? And I think that also, I would attribute that to both of you guys longevity because you just you, you just have such a passion for for being creative would you say that that drives you you know yeah creativity definitely drives me for sure like you know with, like you said with the instagram i, I wasn't evidence in the, and babu got me in the instagram and it wasn't from no like music at all i was loving because you know Ed's mom used to be a photographer was a famous photographer and, right. and he definitely got that <laughs> legitimately naturally you know what i'm saying from he, he, he uh, inherited that from his mom. He's sick with the with the photos, and Babu was too. It, it just made me want to get in, in into the photography because I I used I used to didn't like photography as much because I wanted to do photorealistic paintings, and I was like, okay, if I can do my paintings and make them look like pictures, then later for these photographers, they they got the they take the easy way out. But the one thing I wasn't doing was like uh, teaching myself how to paint like landscapes and stuff like that. So. That was my trade-off. I said, okay, I'm going to start taking pictures of landscapes. I'll paint living things. You know what I'm saying? And then I rap. And, I, and through Instagram, I just show the visual aspect of stuff because that's really what it, at first how it started yeah. until they started letting you do the video stuff. Then it was like, then it went through the roof. You know what I'm saying? But, but yeah, man, I, it's just a creative, the, cha- the pursuit of trying to create. 
mm-hmm. is probably what's going to keep us, you know what I'm saying, until we leave this planet. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's, uh, th- I think that's one of the things that makes you really special. You know what I mean? Is that you're able to, not only that you have these interests, but you're able to commit and really pursue them, you know, to the degree where you can have a concert, you know, you can have a Charlie Tuna rap show, you know, or you can have a Charlie Tuna art show. And then if you go to his Instagram, you might not even know about these other two aspects of his personality because it's just, this is kind of more a showcase for his photography. Yeah, I think that's, I think that that's really inspiring, man, is just to be able to, 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 to be multifaceted like that because I, like most artists, I mean, if you look at my Instagram, not right now, cause we're all at the fucking house. But I mean, if you look at my Instagram, you know, it was, you know, I got this tour coming up, you know, I got this t-shirt about to drop, you know what I mean? I got this da 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 motherfucker, you know, go buy my shit, you know, that kind of thing, you know? But I think like for your page, it was more about the creativity of, you know, look at what I'm, this is what I'm, this is what I'm about, you know? It's not necessarily, this is what I'm trying to promote. This is what I'm actually about, you know? And I think for Cut, you know, I think of all the DJs I know, you probably have the most sort of interesting, endearing, whether it's your, your, you know, your drives with biz, (laughs) you know, which I love, like your car trips with biz, you know, biz Marky, or... Um, I, I think like, like I said, I mean, of, of the guys that I know, the, the, the DJ slash producers that I know from our era, I think you have the most outgoing personality that I, that I know of. And, and I see that in your, your, your Instagram. It, it's funny. I, you know, if you were to look at my Instagram in a certain period of time, and maybe even now, you would probably think that I was just a hip hop collector. Mm, totally. Cause you know, there's a, you know, Charlie is a photographer. I'm not a DJ. I'm I'm like an ephemera collector, right? You know, you know what I love too. Sometimes like uh, we 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 used to do shows, or we still do shows, or like our show at a cut show, or like you know we do a show together, and it's dudes in the crowd that are dressed just like Luke. They look just like cut. Like I we used to clown, with, you know, with, with the Jurassic. It was like it was Newmark and Cut fans, and they dress like them dudes. It's crazy. So yeah, I, 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 look, I, I look like my biggest fan. Yeah. Let me guess. Let me so guess. Quantum, what, what, or in your whole city, was it? Is it like that for you? I can't say anybody came to the gig dressed like Gab. You know, I can't really. <laughs> I can't really say that happened, man. No, <laughs> I can't. But, but I'm saying, like, However, the vibe, though, like the vibe of the person. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. You know, nobody has a vibe like Gab. Like, yeah, I, like I, I did this same call with Gab, and I told him he's the Dalai Lama of Pacoima. You know, there, <laughs> it, there is no other Gab. There, there will never be another. There is no other gift to Gab. He's just singular. There is no other gift to Gab. You know what I mean? Let me just go back and say this. Did the Newmark guys come to the gig in, like, a dad hat? And did the I cut right? Bearded. Totally. Yeah. Got, the, got the Mark Potzig beard, right? Totally. Oh yeah, the Metro, the Metro sharpness. The yes, like totally. You know, perfect beard. Yeah. The number Looking two. Like guard, the number right. The number two guard on the wall, peanut. You know. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then my people are like 
Yeah, like, no sculpting. Like, Absolutely no. zero sculpting. It's a vibe, dude. It's security guard at a comic book store, bro. I know what it is. Bro. I know what it is. <laughs> it's true. You're not. There's no lies. Oh, hey, man. You know, I wanted to do. I, I I used to talk to the guys about this, man. We we wanted to do a pimp my ride for Cut Chemist. Right? I wanted you to do that too. In the 2000 and in whatever it was, 2000 and whatever, maybe it was right. the 90s. My 85 Honda. With the hatchback, yelling the pimp is hatchback. Do you remember that time you came? Yes. Do you remember that time you came to the Bay? You drove to the Bay back yeah. in the day and you stayed at my mother's house. You, yeah. You, you stayed. That was, a, I, that was a different hatchback. That was a different Honda hatchback. That was a 78. But the thing is, you were the smartest fucking one out of anybody. Why the fuck? You know, I was out there buying multiple cars. I got oh, some. No, 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 no. I was out there buying multiple cars. I wanted to live the rap life. You know, well, I think look, I had. Man, I mean, it's totally consistent with my look. Like, you know, my <laughs> car is like my beard. Like, I don't give a fuck. Shoes on my feet were about just like keeping my feet off pavement. Yeah. Sure. It, and, I didn't and, buy my shoes because I was trying to style. Like, I, my style was no style. No style. The freshest cars Cut had in his, in his, at his availability was two, two, two Cadillacs, one white, one black, right? The other one yeah. was black? The brown. And, and, and an Alfa Romero. We went, we went to go get Cut's license in that car. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> See, and, and here's the thing about Charlie. Like, he was there when I got rid of my Honda hatchback just last year. Uh, yeah. It was a few months ago. I, don- I finally donated that fucker. However, I will say this. You know, I have a spot in LA now, and I'm, I harass both of you every time I'm in town. Can we link? You know, let's do something. Let's do this. Let's do that. I came to your gig. You were spinning at the Mayfair, right? Do you remember that a few months ago? And I, I don't think I had seen you in probably a couple years. You right. know, and we were talking after the gig, and it was basically <laughs> when you left, he handed the valet the ticket. I was like, oh, shit, cut chemist valet parked at his own gig, right? What happens? The dude rolls up. What do you drive now? A Mirai? Like a, uh, a, a Chevy Volt. A Volt. He pulled up in a Volt, and I'm like, this is the fucking 2019 cut chemist car. He's the fuck. When it came to this shit, he was the smartest one. At You know, at the end of the day, he was the smartest one, right? <laughs> This shit requires no fuel, you know? I don't know why, but I looked in the back seat. You had like some kind of weird tarp in the back seat. I don't know what the fuck you were doing, but. You can't, you know, because I got to be sloppy in some respect, right? So I got a bunch of shit in my car. Like, <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing, I'll tell you. I would still probably be driving that fucking Honda if I didn't have a woman that goes, you need to get a fucking real car yeah you know what i'm saying like she's like this is cool and all but bro you're in your like later 40s you can't (laughs) you can't you you gotta upgrade your shit eventually right Uh, like get it together man she isn't like really nice about it she didn't say all those things but that's how i interpret it she was just like get your shit together man (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, how about this me and, me and cut did a uh a art exhibit in uh san diego um a while back right um that battery park i can't remember that, that park but anyway 
we we down there. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm I'm there a little bit early. I'm setting my stuff up. Just had a third cut. Hadn't got there yet. I'm just outside. I'm smoking one. I'm chilling, and I see cut and this girl pull up. But they pull up in a what was that y'all was driving? Oh, a, a rental car because I couldn't fit my canvas in a, in my car. I didn't know it was a rental car. I just thought I was like. Woo! Cut upgraded. Finally, he pulled up in this big old truck. It was all shining, big old tires. It was like, you know, what I'm saying? I was like, who big cut? He think fly with it? You know what I'm saying? Like, so no, I ain't, dude. I ain't, I, I, I ain't no SUV dude ever. Like, right? I said, cut you bought this? Because that's what was shocking to me. He was in the SUV. I was like, you bought this? He was like, nah. Really. You know how hard it was for me to even rent that for one day? I was like, man, come on, this is some bullshit. Did it go against all your principles? It felt weird. You, you know what I think you need to do, man? So Join a support group? No, listen. <laughs> on your Chevy Volt, on your Chevy Volt, mm-hmm. on the back, do you have a trailer hitch? Do you have like a hitch on the back? <laughs> do you? No, I don't have a trailer hitch. Well, no, I mean, not a hitch, but you know, like something that, anyway. Okay. Get a pair of those balls. You know those? Have you ever seen those? Like those plastic, those plastic balls that you see them hanging from people's cars. Yeah. What's what do they do? No? Okay. What do they no. do? What do they, they do? do? They just hang. They you just let them hang. You just let your nuts hang. You just let your nuts hang. Oh, it's like balls. Like it's to let people know I got balls. Basically, and I'm letting my balls hang out. Basically. <laughs> T-bag in the world. Yes. Exactly, I'm down. That's exactly what it's for. Is that, is that some bay shit? Or is that, do they do that down here? Kind of. I mean, I'll it down here too, but I see it, I see it on trucks, like uh, either yeah. hatchbacks, I mean, not hatchbacks, uh, pickup trucks or uh, or the actual 18-wheelers. I see them one of the two, yeah. but I'll be saying, I'm like, dude, you still got some balls in this car. <laughs> so there, there was a moment, though, there was a moment, though, in my life, and it was, it was audiences listening, Warner Brothers, where I, I cleaned up. I got rid of the sloppy dope style, as Charlie coined in the sloppy dope. <laughs> that was an ancient term. What and, was called? <laughs> okay. and when I became a solo artist, and I didn't hide behind four MCs anymore, I I cleaned up, lost a lot of weight, wore suits or wore like jacket suit jackets and jeans, looking like a hip songwriter. And you know, clean beard. You know, I was like, I, it was happening. I bought a hybrid Honda. And then, you know, but I, I couldn't stick with that for too long, right? And then I just self-destructed. I was like, well, fuck it. This sloppy dope shit seems to work for me. So I'm going back to that. Well, okay. Now that we're on this topic, though. Now that we're on this topic. Okay. Another commonality I know between both of you guys. And I believe that this contributes to your longevity as artists. You guys are both incredibly frugal. Well, the reason I'm frugal is because the, the woman that just walked in, uh, my mom, she taught me how to really penny pinch and be like, okay, you only get your necessities and fuck off for the rest of it. Like, yeah. don't splurge because you're not guaranteed a financial tomorrow ever. You yeah. know, if you have it now, like, just fucking save that shit. If, if, if it weren't for her, I wouldn't have shit. Thanks, mom. Is that why you saved your hair? <laughs> yeah, because when I lose my hair when I get older, at least I have that hair, right? I can. <laughs> the only thing that I know Tuna to spend money on, because he doesn't spend money on weed, 
people just give you weed, right? I mean, do you, do you buy weed at this point? I, I, I do everyone. You know, like if I got if I want some, I'm like, I got a taste for some. I'm gonna go to this dispensary. Well, I, you know, yeah. I you'll still buy. buy I, I support the, the the weed culture for sure. Okay, so you go buy weed. But the only thing I know you to spend money on is electronics, right? Yeah, and I also spend on on toys, man. I'm a I'm, I got a toy right. thing. Yeah, like bad, like really yeah. bad. But I, I mean, I don't know. I, I my mom was a hustler. It was as simple yeah. as that, you know, criminal style. We was getting all kind of luxurious <laughs> shit for little to no money, and she taught me a couple of things, you know, especially like cars and stuff. So I I, I knew how to like run up in a car dealership and just like run the game. So that's why I was like jumping through cars because I knew how to do it. My mom showed me how to do it. I was like, oh, this is easy. Okay, cool. So I, you know, I, since we had the deal, I probably had about 10, 12 cars. But, wow. you know, just like playing that game. And then now just recently, I'm like, all right, I'm going to buy the car that I got now. I'm going to buy. I'm almost finished paying, paying it off right now. What, what, do you, what is Charlie Tuna drive? What do you drive right now? A, a Mercedes GLK. Hey! Wee! That drove my car because I had a I had a uh, I had a boot on my foot. I had broke my foot at an Ozo gig. Yeah. I had a boot on my foot, and me and Cut was working at his crib, and we wanted to go get some coffee. Yeah. And I was like, well, "Cut, I can't drive though. Here, you can drive." And he drove my car. He was like, "Yeah, this shit smooth." <laughs> <laughs> I had to laugh because I was like, "Why did he say that?" I thought about. It. I was like, "Oh yeah, he drive. He drive the Chevy." No, yeah, but that my my Chevy my Chevy's fucking smooth as glass. But yeah, I was surprised that it, you driving an SUV was that smooth. I wasn't frugal for other things, obviously, like you know, expensive records and much of my girlfriend's dismay and disgruntledness. Flyers, like pieces of paper that were expensive, mm. but you know, I found that inspiration is um, price and so if whatever helps me be creative and yeah. i can surround myself around these um what do you call them like talismans mm-hmm. and things like that that are going to spark creativity and it's an investment in that in that um to 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 continue creating so i always felt like it's justified other people would be like bitch you just spent a lot of money on paper like on fucking paper. <laughs> um I know I've seen you spend a whole bunch of money on a record, put it like a grip, like some thousands, and it tripped me out. I was like, wait, what? But put it, put it to you like this. One of those records that I might have paid $1,000 for, I would sample and make a beat out of and make 10 times that. You know right. what I'm saying? It was, all, sure. it was all good. Well, like um, any, any gig I was at or hotel that we stayed at, like you go backstage and Tuna would have like a whole – motherfucking workstation set up you know what i mean like you were like what was that movie daryl <laughs> <laughs> do you remember what the acronym stood for don't go I, knew, I, I remember it was an acronym I, I don't remember what it stood for i don't either but yeah because you have and and but you'd be doing amazing shit right like you'd be you you make your photos look like that you know what i'm saying and you would be doing all this and, and you just hook up with the dude, with the dude, and I'm just like, oh my god, man, I'm lost and old, man. I don't know if I can figure <laughs> this out, man. You know what I mean? But that is that everybody has their sort, their their shtick. You know what I mean? Everybody has their thing that they that they commit to. You know that one thing that they don't have any problem spending money on. That one. Yeah, thing. it's crazy when you when you yeah. talk about that, like all the different 
people in J5 when we would tour and we would land in a city. Everybody yeah. would do different things like soup and Mark to the mall or no. Yeah. Uh, soup to the movies, you know, soup and Mark to the mall, me to the record store, new Mark to the record store with me, tuna paint. You know what I mean? Um, and then within that, there's just a uh, uh, kill community, you know, community based outreach, you know, like all the personalities just were really apparent by what they chose to do in their own time. Yeah. So fascinating. I mean, everybody's got their thing, man. Yeah. You know? Well, listen, man, this has been really cool. I, I just don't, like I said, I don't know two guys really that, I mean, I, I made more songs, I think, with Tuna. I think we've done at least four or five together. Yeah, something like that. And outside of the Quantum guys, I think that's the most with any other MC that I've ever done. You know what I mean? Like outside. Wow. And I and I know I'm not the only one like that that works with you. With you, everybody that I know that talks about Tuna, they're like, "Oh man, he's one of my best friends in the industry." You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. <laughs> That's dope. You, you know, like they 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 consider you a great friend, you know, in the industry, you know, and I, I totally see why. I mean, we've done, I mean, the, the Deadliest Catch tour was probably one of my most fun tours that I've ever been on. I man, have me never, too, man. I have never been so that tour together. High. Was that, is that Deadliest Catch as in like tuna? Like you, did you? Yes. So what, what happened was it was like um, my, my, my solo album was coming out and I wanted to put it, put together a tour that, that consisted of the West Coast artists. You know what I mean? Like the our peer group basically, you know what I'm saying? So I reached out to Gab. Gab had something coming out at that time. And, and I reached out to, to, to LB, and he was like, yeah, I'll do it. I was like, man, won't you host it? He was like, yeah, can I do some songs? And I'm like, yeah. So he hosted it. Um, I headlined, Gab busted. We had DNA, right? We had DNA beats. But it was somebody, it was, it was something else. Lift. Somebody, man, Lift. Lift. And Mr. Lift came on it too, yeah. So and we had this cool little, the ad mat was dope, everything. Well, was the, the most um, satisfying thing of that whole tour for me was after we was finished, I got the cease and desist letter from that TV show, from uh, whatever. whatever. Yeah, wow, you're really, yeah. uh, you're really good with cease and desist. Yes, I am. <laughs> Let me tell you something, though, man. So I was the host on that tour, right? I was the host. It was, it was Tuna and House of Vibe, right? House of Vibe was the band. So shout out sure. to Brew and Corey and everybody. And uh, Abdul, Abdul was the, the road manager and the driver. And so I was riding with, with Tuna in their Sprinter, right? Gab was like, hey, yo, Tom, you want to roll with me? I was like, nah. <laughs> so I went, <laughs> so we were on the Sprinter. How long was, was it a month, would you say? Was it about uh, a month? A little bit less than a month, a little bit less than a, a month, little, yeah. I have never been so high in my life and never smoked a thing. It was <laughs> wow. We had clouds in that one. So hot. Like when I got home, when I got home from that from that tour, my I, I, I gave myself a pee test and it was just brown. Word. <laughs> just brown, bro. Like I and it took me like a week just to detox. You know what I mean? I have never seen a group of dudes smoke that much weed that frequently. And from then, like I always said after that, Tuna, I mean, he's Cheech and Chong. <laughs> That's some big ass lungs, man. They go Cheech right there. Yeah. They go Chong over here. 
And at that time, I think you were smoking blunts, right? Like, you don't even smoke blunts anymore. Nah, not no more. My, my father passed, man. He had asked me to stop. He was like, yo, you know, he passed the cancer. So he was like, I, I smell that good-ass weed you be smoking all the time. You don't need them blunts. And I was just like, yeah. But let me tell you, man, what I took from that tour, it, it, me in the House of Bob still to this day, it, it, one of the, the, the coolest terms that came from Lyrics Board. We was driving, rolling past Ross. He was like, yo. You got a little time, man. Let's stop at this Ross. He's like, stop at Ross? Why? Why you got to stop at Ross? He was like, boy, y'all don't understand. And he popped his collar. He said, you go up in Ross, you come out looking like a boss. <laughs> and we've been saying that since then. <laughs> Every time we, if you see Brew, and you say anything about Ross, first thing he said, you come out looking like a boss. <laughs> at Ross. That shit was so funny. Like, we would go into cities and just tear Ross up. <laughs> like, you know how, like, most, you know, most guys, like, you get into a city, you walk out with hella bags from the mall? Yeah. We'd walk out with all, you know, those gray and royal blue bags from Ross. Hey, what you get? You know, anyway. You know, the colors and everything. My little brother, man, he took he took your advice, boy. He be coming up with some crazy shoes. I'm like, where you get them from? He like, ah, oh, Ross. I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> Everything I've ever gotten from Ross, like rips or something, in like a matter of, like short time. So oh, yeah. I, I, don't, I can't go there. It's like uh, <laughs> too cheap. You got to know how to be boutique shopping. At shopping Ross. That's hella funny. Hey, all I know, like I'll, I'll go to I'll go to like Sands on on the Sunset Strip and pay like way too much for good quality clothes. What is Sands? What is, so Sands is the place Newmark and I went and got our suits for the Coachella show, where they came out some garçon with some champagne. Three champagnes <laughs> comes out while we're trying on fucking clothes for our coach. I was like, you we're in the right place, B. Like this is it. We're, we're going to be looking like a million bucks at this Coachella stage. It, it's Sam, S-A-M? No, no, Sam's, S-A-N-D-S. Oh, like the casino? I suppose. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Right. But, yeah, um, so if you ever have a guy serving you champagne as you're trying on clothes, you're in the right spot. That's so not cut chemist, like that situation, right? Like, I'm like, this is it. I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm in, Mark. Like, am I going to be chiseling up, too? Like, is, what, is it the kind of store where there's no prices on the clothes? Yes. Okay. And they, are you familiar with Sands, Charlie? Do you know Sands? No, okay. I just remember when they came back uh, for, for Coachella, Newmark got, you know, because he could imitate. Both of them dudes can imitate the shit out of people. And he, get, he imitated this dude <laughs> to the team. And I, and I just kept having Newmark try to say it again. Like, tell him, well, how did that, what that dude say again? He's like, three seven. I can't even do how he did. <laughs> no, no, but he, he got more exaggerated and more absurd with it to be like, three champagnes, you know? And the dude didn't even sound like that. All he did was like, oh, three champagnes, you know? Like, that's really how it went out. The but thing that was funny. A little fucking spin on it and just turned it into like a Seinfeld episode. The thing that was funny about that is I think I just saw your bare leg kick up in the air. No, I'm wearing shorts. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm not doing like some fucking, you know, quarantine shirt cock shit. Yeah. Me. You guys got yeah, any old, uh, you guys got any old like uh, soul side t-shirts? I, I, do, I, I do, man. I do. Oh, oh dope. Wow. I, I, I have greatest bumps shirts. Yeah, okay. 
Those are those are dope. I think I I still have one. Okay, well I tell you what, when this shit ends in twenty twenty five, I'll bring you one, man. You know, <laughs> you got Wayne Lyon. Yeah. <laughs> you coming down to L.A. Or are you here now? I mean, no, no, no. I'm back. I'm back in the bay now. I'm back in the bay. I hope soon, man. I mean, I'm. I'll be traveling when everybody else is, man. Whenever that is, man. I, well, listen, man. You know, I want to thank you guys both for doing this. I mean, I was looking forward to this all week long. You know, and uh, this is something that um, it's it's been really helpful for me. You know, because it's like it's like we were talking about earlier, cut when you talk about community. You know, and just being a part of this community. And this is a community that the three of us have been a part of for a long time, man. And, and music has just done so much for us and it's created this, this, um, this, this sort of brotherhood that I think that we have, you know, that it's really special to me. And I think um, it's, uh, I think it inspires a lot of people, and particularly from what you guys do, man. And uh, I think it's just so necessary right now for, for us to 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 have this relationship and have this community that we can draw upon, you know, in in, in situations and times like these, and it's easier than ever. Like, there's no excuses to not be a part of it because you all you, all you have to do is turn on your computer and join. You know what I mean, it's not like oh, I can't make it because I'm going to be over here and doing this. It's like no, nah. if you want to be part of a community, like last night, I was like, well, fuck it, I'm going to go to the Cubert. Justin Bua joint feed and hang out and engage like yeah. it's one thing to watch it but to actually engage in the community and get in the chat and be like yo what's up fellas and show your support like yeah. that's what I'm talking about you know yeah. everybody can get, like Creepersville be like watching this shit yeah but, like get in get in there and be like yo what's up and then they start talking to you and then everybody starts to talk with you and you're chatting with other people and talking to them and it's like that's all like right now that's everything man yeah, the playing field has been leveled like a mug for sure. And these are bigger crowds than we could ever even attempt to even try to. I was watching Erica Badu and and, uh, and uh, Jill Scott yesterday, and that kind of bugged my whole head out. I was like, wait. And it was, I mean, you know, I, I, I love them two girls, man. It wasn't as, as entertaining as I thought it would be, but it was near a million people watching. I'm like, yeah. yo, you will never get that kind of crowd. If you went to the biggest stadium, you would still never get that crowd. Hundred percent, seven hundred thousand people at one time. That was crazy. Hundred percent. You know, and I think that's what's so um, important about you know what you guys do uh, is that you know you you guys have touched so many people over the years. You know, just through Jurassic Five, through Ozo Motley, through Charlie Tuna and Cut Chemist individually you know and it's really special i think what you guys do you know both together and, and and um individually and i think a lot of times maybe we don't all we're not always able to see that you know even especially about ourselves and i think in in in, in this era when you know that that connection and then that, that interaction is so meaningful you know, I'm just, I'm really happy that we're able to do this, you know, and I'm really, I'm really honored and pleased that you, you guys were able to do this. I really do consider um, both of you guys to be not just really peers, but people that I look up to, you know, in terms of what you do artistically. And I, I, I continue to be amazed by what you do day in and day out as artists, but also by your body of work and, and, and your commitment to your craft, man. So I just want to say thank you. And, um, 
you know, on behalf of everybody that's going to watch this, um, I think they, they probably feel the same, man. So thank you very much for doing this with me. Thank you for being here too, gentlemen. I appreciate you, man. Thanks for being the person that you is. Later for the, the artist too, but the person, man. I appreciate you to the max, man. Thank really. you, man. Thank yeah, you. no doubt, man. Thank you, and thanks for asking us to be a part of this. Of course. Yeah. We'll have to do it again, man. That was a lot of fun, man. I, I mean, know, right? I'm, I'm down. I'm here. You know, I, I ain't got shit else to do, bro. Same yeah. here. <laughs> okay. I love y'all, man. Have a good Thank night. You, Thank man. You, man. Peace. Okay. Later. Yo, thank you for listening to Mobile Homies. Make sure you subscribe and hit me with a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you catch your podcasts. For more content, hit up lyricsborn.com. Love y'all. Huh.